This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. I'm Brian Leiter. I teach uh, jurisprudence, evidence, various law and philosophy related courses. And indeed, the, uh, the arguments from my book that I'm going to talk about today actually originated uh, in a law and philosophy workshop several years ago here at Chicago, which we did on the theme of religious liberty and, and religious toleration. Um, so I'm going to try to speak for only about 20 or so minutes in order to allow time for questions. Um, so I'm just going to be able to focus on a few of the, the themes from the book. But let's, <clears throat> let's start with uh, uh, a scenario, and not a hypothetical scenario, an actual one. Uh, imagine it's the first day of middle school, and a boy shows up for school, uh, seventh grader, eighth grader, shows up for the first day of school with his dagger strapped to his belt. Um, teacher is a bit perturbed by this, notifies the principal, principal summons the boy in, police are called, <clears throat> boy is thrown out of school, the dagger is confiscated since the law typically prohibits the carrying of weapons in the schools. Now, that seems simple and straightforward, but it's not going to be simple and straightforward if the boy is a member of this Sikh religion. In the Sikh religion, boys at the age of maturity, roughly 13 or 14, uh, acquire a religious obligation to carry a ceremonial dagger that is called a kirpan, K-I-R-P-A-N. Um, <clears throat> the kirpan is often a real dagger, right? Um, and it is carried in a, in a sheath. Uh, and often, Sikhs have had to litigate against prohibitions on carrying the kirpan in areas where weapons are ordinarily not permitted. So in an important case in Canada that made it to the Canadian Supreme Court in 2006, Multani, which is a case I talk about in the, in the book, uh, the Canadian Supreme Court said that although there is a general and quite proper ban on weapons in the schools, an exception must be made for an observant Sikh boy who, in accordance with his religion, must carry his kirpan with him. Okay. Now, this was a particularly interesting case of an exemption from a law of general applicability because other Sikhs, including in the same community in Canada where the case arose, viewed themselves as being able to discharge their religious obligation by carrying uh, merely a wooden dagger, right, or a plastic one. But this particular boy, his particular family, his particular community, it had to be an actual kirpan. And the Canadian Supreme Court said, even though we don't ordinarily tolerate the weapons, weapons in the schools, in this case we have to tolerate an exception, right? And that's where this idea of toleration, why tolerate religion, uh, gets its purchase. Sometimes we ask the law to tolerate an exception or an exemption from a law in order to accommodate the 
religious obligations of certain individuals. Now, here's the, the curious thing which animates the, the concern in, in the book, which is that these kinds of exemptions right, are, with only one exception I'll talk about, only available to those who have religious objections. They are not available to those who have non-religious but conscientious objections to particular laws. Okay? In the United States, this has been settled as a matter of constitutional fiat. The First Amendment protects the free exercise of religion, full stop. The strange thing is, is that if you look at the Canadian Charter, you look at the European Convention on Human Rights, you look at the German Constitution, many other constitutions of Western democracies actually recognize a general right of liberty of conscience as well as a right of religious liberty. But in reality, the only claimants who are successful in getting exemptions, in getting the state to tolerate their deviation from the law, are religious objectors. Okay? The one exception to that generalization is in the context of conscientious objection to military service. All the Western democracies have generally found ways to allow non-religious conscientious objection to military service. Even the United States did that during the Vietnam War, which was the last time we had a military draft. But, and this is quite important, when the United States Supreme Court said that you could have a non-religiously based objection to military service, they decided that as a matter not of constitutional law, but as a matter of statutory interpretation. That is, they presented it as their interpretation of the Selective Service Registration Act. Now, the Selective Service Registration Act actually defined conscientious objection in religious terms. It required a belief in God. And the court just sort of passed that by and said, <clears throat> you could have a conscientious objection to military service without necessarily having any religious foundation for that. Um, now, it wasn't accidental that they didn't make this a matter of constitutional law. If, as some scholars uh, have argued, including Douglas Laycock, who used to be on this faculty and is a graduate of this law school, and a very well-known uh, scholar in the religious liberty area and also uh, an active litigator, um, Laycock has actually argued that the First Amendment of the United States Constitution should be interpreted in such a way that free exercise of religion includes basically free exercise of non-religious conscience as well. Okay? The U.S. Supreme Court has not adopted that interpretation. Why they have not adopted that interpretation is easy to imagine. Because if the U.S. Supreme Court were to interpret the First Amendment that way, then the door would be opened to anyone. Right, to object to any law on the grounds that it offends or violates their conscience. Mm -hmm. Now, the courts don't want to go down that particular avenue, again, for obvious reasons. For one thing, it would generate an enormous amount of litigation, and it would put the courts in the unhappy position of having to adjudicate the, genuous, the genuineness of the conscientious objections at, at issue. Now, this has sometimes happened in the religious liberty context more generally. That is, there was the notorious case of the Church of Marijuana, 
um, which sought an exemption from laws prohibiting the smoking of marijuana on the grounds that the adherents had a religious obligation to smoke dope. Um, the court didn't buy that. They decided it was bogus. They were quite clearly correct. But in general, right, at least with religious objections to laws of general applicability, right, you have a much sounder evidential base for figuring out whether the so-called conscientious objection is in fact legitimate. Because the nice thing about religions is they tend to have texts, institutions. Right? You can figure out whether or not there is genuinely a conscientious, objection, a, a conscientious obligation to carry a curb hand. It's actually quite easy to establish. Even though, as I mentioned in the Canadian case, the particular practices in this Sikh community right, were not the same as in others, but it was very clear that in that community the obligation was to carry uh, an, actual, an actual dagger. Okay. So conscientious objection to military service has been the, the one exception. But the more general phenomenon right, is that if you have a claim of religious conscience, you in many cases may have standing to successfully challenge the application of a law right, to you that would either proscribe or prescribe certain conduct that you feel you can't engage in. If you have a non-religious conscientious objection, tough luck, right? tough luck. So the question I'm concerned with in the book is why or whether we can justify what's basically an inequity, right, an inequality in the standing of religious versus non-religious claims of conscience. Now, we understand what the historical reasons are why religious claims of conscience, right, are singled out, as they are in the American Constitution, uh, for special legal solicitude. Right? These provisions, the idea of religious toleration, grew out of the early modern wars of religion in Europe, in which at a certain point <clears throat> people came to the realization that um, it might be better to put up with religious beliefs and practices of which we disapprove rather than to endlessly try to slaughter each other. Okay? Now, this was, I think, this was the core origin of principles of toleration in the, the Western democracies. It grew out of this bitter experience. It's actually, a, I think, a kind of funny case of toleration. Right? Because when we talk about toleration, right, we're talking about the idea that we ought to put up with beliefs or practices that other people engage in that we disapprove of. Right? But then the question is, why should we put up with them? Right? Why should we put up with them? In the case of the early modern wars of religion, right, the decision was made we ought to tolerate religious beliefs and practices of which we disapprove, but not really for what I would call a principled or moral reason. Right? That kind of toleration is, is what I'll refer to as a kind of Hobbesian compromise. Right? This is after the English political philosopher Thomas Hobbes. Right? And the thought is this, that is sometimes we're going to put up with beliefs and practices of which we disapprove, um, not because we think we have a moral obligation to put up with them, that it's right to let people believe and do things we think are wrong, but rather because we can't get away with suppressing their beliefs and practices without an intolerable cost to ourselves. Right? So Hobbesian compromise is essentially self-interested. We would love to stamp out the heretics. 
but we're not going to get away with it, and it's going to be way too costly, so we're not even going to bother. I think the more interesting question is, what are the reasons for toleration right, um, that are not self-interested reasons, but moral or ethical reasons? Um, and this is sometimes described, I mean, putting this question is described as generating the paradox of toleration. Because the idea here is, on the one hand, you may disapprove of certain beliefs and practices, think they're wrong, and yet think it's morally right to permit people to engage in those beliefs and practices which on its face can look somewhat paradoxical. So what are the moral reasons for a practice of toleration? Well, there are various reasons um, that have been given, but I want to focus on, on just two that I think have been influen influential uh, in certainly in, in American law in different ways, but also in uh, Western liberal societies more, more generally. And these are arguments uh, that are, as it were, best embodied by two significant philosophers of the last 200 years. One is the English utilitarian philosopher John Stuart Mill from the 19th century, um, whose harm principle you have no doubt encountered in criminal law. Um, and the other is a set of arguments usually associated with John Rawls, American political philosopher of the 20th century. And I'm just going to sketch these arguments in very abbreviated form for you. But the point I want to make, and this is the striking thing about these arguments, is these arguments don't single out religious conscience as especially deserving of toleration as against other claims of conscience. Right? So that is, these arguments for toleration don't seem to explain or justify the inequality in treatment of different claims of conscience that our law currently embodies. So the Rawlsian argument, let me give it to you in brief form. Rawls is usually associated with the Kantian or deontological tradition in modern moral philosophy. Rawls wants to ask the question, what would be the principles that would be constitutive of the basic institutions of a just society? And he says, to understand what principles justice would require, we need to engage in a certain kind of thought experiment. He says, ask yourself, what principles would people agree on right, if they were in what Rawls calls the original position? Where the original position is a situation, a hypothetical situation, where people are going to enter into a kind of social contract about how society will be organized. But the crucial thing about the original position is that people are stripped of almost all the kinds of knowledge of their actual situation in society. The idea being that when we're stripped of those considerations, right, we'll make a genuinely fair judgment about the basic principles of justice. If we don't know whether we're rich or poor, or black or white, or Christian or Jewish, or atheist or whatever, we won't be influenced by the partiality of those facts about our identity in deciding what basic principles of justice should be. Right? And Rawls says, now, to be clear, you do get to know some things in the original position. Right? You have to know something about what human beings are like. Right? You have to know what are the conditions that are necessary for human beings to, in fact, live <coughs> successful uh, and meaningful lives. And one of the things you are entitled to know in the original position is that human beings, creatures like us, have a sense of conscience. 
they have a sense that certain things are, as I'll put it, categorical or obligatory, not optional. Right? All of us, whether it's connected to a religious tradition or not, have a sense of conscience, things that we feel we absolutely must do and things we absolutely cannot do. And that piece of information is available to people in Rawls's hypothetical situation. And he says because right, individuals in the original position are aware that they will have a sense of conscience and they will know that their sense of conscience is very, very important to them, they aren't going to want to agree to principles of justice that would involve a gamble that their sense of conscience ended up in the minority and so they never were able to act on it. It was just suppressed. Right? And therefore, one of the basic principles of justice they will agree to right, is one that ensures a kind of equal liberty of conscience for all. That, in a nutshell, is Rawls's argument. You'll notice it's, it clearly encompasses religious conscience, but it's not specific to religious claims of conscience. Now, the interesting thing is Mill, uh, the great utilitarian philosopher, and the, the irony here is, of course, Rawls had written his book, A Theory of Justice, in 1971. And I'm just talking here about the early Rawls's views. If some of you are interested in later Rawls's views, which are totally mistaken, we can talk about that. <coughs> um, don't tell Martha Nussbaum I said that. <laughs> um, <coughs> you can get a diversity of viewpoints around here. Um, Rawls wrote his book as a response to utilitarian moral theorizing. He thought utilitarian theories missed something very important in thinking about justice uh, and moral rightness and wrongness. But on the issue of liberty of conscience, Mill actually arrives at a very similar position to Rawls. But he arrives there through a different set of considerations. So Mill says, um, Mill's a utilitarian, so he thinks the right thing to do is whatever will maximize utility or happiness. Right? Um, Mill is not a Benthamite utilitarian. Bentham thought that happiness was just a matter of pleasure and the absence of pain. He thought all pleasure and pain was essentially the same in character. It could differ in quantity, but not in quality, right? which led to the conclusion that your pleasure in attending this lecture, which is manifest on your face, uh, is essentially on a continuum with the pleasure of drinking good wine, going to a Bears game, listening to music you like. All pleasures differ only in quantity, not quality. Mill rejected that view. He thought there were qualitative differences in the kinds of happiness that people can experience. And Mill then also thought that the discovery of the truth was conducive to maximizing utility or happiness. Right? And this was his key thought here, that we have to discover the truth right, in order to maximize happiness or utility in society. And this means not just truths about the empirical or physical world. Right? It also means truths about how it is best to live. And this is important to remember, Mill thought there were better and worse answers to the question how one ought to live. And I'll come back to that in just, just a moment. Okay, how does the fact that discovery of the truth maximizes utility lead to an argument for liberty of conscience, liberty of speech, uh, and indeed a good deal of liberty of action as well? Well, Mill's thought was this. He says, look, um, <clears throat> Mill was, in philosophical terminology, a fallibilist. 
um, he thought that we could never be absolutely certain that we've got things right. We may have a lot of good reasons for thinking we believe the truth, but it's always possible we're going to be wrong. And so the first point he makes is you won't figure out if you're right or wrong if you always suppress dissenting opinions. Right? You've got to hear contrary views in order to figure out whether what you believe is really true. Now, as a side note, it turns out Mill doesn't really believe that uh, because he doesn't believe it about geometry, and maybe we'll talk about that in uh, Q&A. Um, <clears throat> but Mill says, look, even if your current beliefs are all true, even if everything you believe right now is true, it's still often good to hear false opinions about things. Right? Why? Well, because Mill says uh, you will believe what's true for the right kinds of reasons if you are confronted with false opinions that you then have to refute and think about why do you believe the things that you believe. So it's a kind of way of avoiding a certain kind of dogmatic commitment to beliefs, even if they turn out to be the, the true beliefs. So that was Mill's basic idea, that if we're going to discover the truth, we have to be challenged by opinions that we think wrong, because sometimes they might be right or partially right. And sometimes, even if they're wholly wrong, they still serve uh, a, sorry, I walked out of the screen there. They still serve a useful uh, a useful purpose in forcing us to clarify the reasons for why we believe what we believe. But this extends importantly to questions about how we ought to live as well. Right? Mill thought that, now Mill was also as a matter of general epistemology, his general view of knowledge was that all knowledge comes from the senses, from experience. All knowledge is basically empirical. And he thought we could acquire knowledge of what are the best ways to live from experience as well. In particular, by observing different ways people might live. He called them experiments in living. Right? And drawing inferences about which ways of living were conducive to happiness, being a law student, for example, and which ways of living were not conducive to happiness. I'm not taking a strong position on that experiment in living. But the experiment is available to us. Um, I've been through it. You're going through it. And we can then draw conclusions about whether or not it is conducive uh, to, to happiness. So for Mill, it was very important, not just that there be a significant liberty of belief and conscience and expression, but that there also be a significant amount of liberty for people to act in accordance with a different sense of what's valuable, what's worthwhile, because it produces a kind of evidence about which lives are really conducive to happiness. Now, these arguments are not, these arguments for toleration of different experiments and living, differing opinions and so on, they're not without limits, right? And this is where Mill's famous harm principle kicks in, right? The colloquial expression of it, which you've, you've all heard, right, is my liberty to swing my fist ends at your nose, right? Mill thought that, look, there's a limit Right, to the experiments of living people should engage in. Namely, they can engage in experiments that are going to result in harm to other people. There's a vexed question in a large literature on what constitutes harms, and we can talk a little bit about that. But that, as it were, puts a limit on the scope of toleration. And Rawls actually recognizes a very similar, similar kind of limit. But again, back to my main point, what Mill's argument shows, like Rawls, right, is that there is a reason 
right, to tolerate liberty of conscience. Right? This was, they decided it was a failed experiment in living. <laughs> they heard enough and said, oh boy, this is making me unhappy. <laughs> they, uh, the, the Millian argument, like the Rawlsian argument, is not specific to religious conscience. And so let me just make a couple of brief remarks about the final topic, which in many ways may be the most difficult topic that this, uh, this whole issue presents. If there, aren't good, if there are good moral reasons for toleration of the Rawlsian or the Millian kind, okay, but they aren't reasons that are specific to religious conscience, then what should the law do? Okay. And one possibility I alluded to earlier, right, is we could just have a universal scheme of exemptions for claims of conscience. But as I mentioned, courts are never going to go for that. Right? It's just going to be impractical. But it does seem to me there's another issue here that, that we do need to think about. Um, and interestingly enough, this was a view that was adopted by the United States Supreme Court in 1990 in a case called Employment Division versus Smith. Any of you read Employment Division versus Smith? Right, probably, okay. So let me just describe for you. This was in an opinion by Justice Scalia, by the way. So I want to emphasize that because the, the conclusion is a little surprising. Um, Mr. Smith uh, was a member of a Native American religion that included among its religious obligations the requirement to chew what was in fact an illegal narcotic called peyote. Okay? Now peyote is not like uh, marijuana. I'll just say so I'm told. Um, in the sense that peyote is apparently disgusting. Right? It's, you know, it, it has a narcotic effect, but nobody chews it unless they got a religious obligation to, right? It apparently is very foul tasting. So this wasn't like the Church of Marijuana. This was a genuine part of a religious tradition uh, that had been part of the customs of this Native American religion. Uh, Mr. Smith lost his job um, as a drug counselor, as it happens, uh, because he tested positive for an illegal narcotic. He then applied for unemployment benefits, was denied unemployment benefits on the grounds that he'd been fired for breaking the law. Right? And that's why he's suing the unemployment division. And he wanted an exemption from the law that says you can't collect unemployment benefits if you're fired for violating the narcotics laws. And the United States Supreme Court said in this opinion by Justice Scalia, which has never been overruled, though it's been quite effectively undermined, as I'll explain, Scalia said, there's actually no constitutional obligation to create, create an exemption from a neutral law of general applicability, such as a law prohibiting certain narcotics. And so he decided against, with majority of the court, against Smith. Now, the crucial thing was we're talking about neutral laws of general applicability. That is, this law right, wasn't a subterfuge for persecuting Native American religionists. Okay? The Supreme Court has confronted laws like that. There was a case in the 1980s where a Florida town banned animal sacrifices, defended it on the grounds of concern for animal welfare. Examination of the record made clear completely bogus. The only reason the city council got interested in animal welfare was because a small religious sect 
deriving from somewhere in the Caribbean moved in and they had the practice of sacrificing animals and people didn't like this religion. Right? And so the court invalidated that because that wasn't really a neutral law of general applicability. But Scalia said neutral laws of general applicability, there's no constitutional obligation to create exemptions right, because, they re, because they prohibit conduct that religious believers feel they have an obligation to engage in. That was 1990. Um, it is still good law but not very effective law because uh, there was a very strong backlash against it. Uh, the Congress enacted the Religious Freedom Restoration Act which basically tried to reinstate the prior constitutional standard which said roughly if the law is too burdensome to the free exercise of religion you have to carve out an exemption. Exactly the view that Scalia rejected in, in Employment Division versus Smith. The Religious Freedom Restoration Act was enacted at, similar statutes were enacted at the state level. Various state courts interpreted their constitutions to provide more protection. The US Supreme Court was a little up in arms about RIFRA, that's the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, um, because as those of you who have taken constitutional law will know, uh, the United States Supreme Court successfully claimed for itself 200 years ago the authority to say what the federal constitution means. And they got a little upset that RIFRA was Congress's attempt to overrule the Supreme Court in a constitutional matter. Can't do that. Okay. Can't do that. But they said, in effect, RIFRA can apply to the federal Congress. That is, Congress can tie its hands and say, we won't enact laws that excessively burden religion, and if we do, we want there to be exemptions. But they can't say that's what the federal constitution means, and therefore that's what the states have to do. Anyway, it's a complicated sort of post-employment division versus Smith history. It was pretty successful at restoring what had been the, the status quo prior to employment division versus Smith. Question to think about, maybe Employment Division versus Smith was correct. And what I'd like you to think about, and I think it's, it's becoming a particularly vivid issue, certainly in, in the Western United States, exemptions to neutral laws of general applicability do often shift burdens onto other people. Right? I mean, if it's a just law that serves a legitimate purpose, sometimes when you create exemptions from the law, it harms others. The dramatic example that we now see in California and Washington are exemptions to mandatory vaccination schemes. So measles has made a comeback. Whooping cough has made a big comeback. Now, partly I think these, the mandatory vaccination scheme exemptions are granted much too casually. Right? Indeed, in California, being California, you can get an exemption if you have a philosophical objection. Okay? Not, not just religious, so there you can have a philosophical objection, but it doesn't actually mean you have to, as it were, write a book to explain your objection. You just check the right kind of box. Exemptions to laws of general applicability are not without cost to society as a whole. Right? Some exemptions are. Some do not shift burdens onto other people. Some exemptions shift a lot of burdens. And so my own view, which I argue for in the conclusion of the book, is that something a bit closer to what Scalia was getting at in Employment Division versus Smith was probably a sounder policy with respect to neutral laws of general applicability and subject to certain caveats like the laws really do promote the general welfare, they're just laws and so on. If they're unjust laws, there's all kinds of reasons why people oughtn't to obey them, but that's as it were a talk for, for a different day. Okay, sorry, I went a little longer. I'll stop here and invite your questions. Thank you.
you explain sort of the self-interested reason or reasons for tolerating religion, um, and, and then I don't know if you wrote off those um, self-interested reasons and went on to sort of the moral reasons, but yeah. what about the, the argument that there is still a self-interested reason in, in modern society for tolerating reason, religion, which it might be that religious people create a lot of positive externalities in the society, in which case tolerating religion is in one's self-interest. Okay, good. So, yeah, two things. I didn't mean, um, I didn't mean to write off Hobbesian compromise. Right? Hobbesian compromise is often very important, and sometimes it's the best we can get. Right? And the upshot of the early modern wars of religion was a kind of Hobbesian compromise, and we can all say thank God for it, right? because the prior 30 or 40 years had been horrendous. Um, what I did want to say is that um, it's a more secure basis for toleration if the reasons for toleration are not Hobbesian ones but moral ones in the sense I described. Because the thing about toleration when it's basis is only Hobbesian compromise, is that if one group gets strong enough right, that they could actually get away with suppressing the beliefs and practices they disapprove of, they will. Right? And so in that sense, Hobbesian compromise is always a little vulnerable, as it were, to the changing fortunes of the different groups that are, that are in competition. Um, now, Religious groups um, and religious believers sometimes produce positive externalities, um, to use that awful language of the economist. Um, and they sometimes produce negative ones, too. So um, I, and I, I talk a little bit about this in, in the book. right? I mean, it seems to me the fair thing to say right, is not the sort of you know, the, the Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens line, which is religion is always wicked. Right? That's not very plausible empirically. But the flip side isn't very plausible either. It seems to me the record is mixed. Right? The record is mixed. Sometimes religious institutions, religious communities are literally on the side of the angels, and sometimes they're not. Right? Um, so I don't think uh, you know, considerations of that kind are going to, to get us very far. And you'll notice that the arguments for toleration that I described, the Millian and the Rawlsian arguments, right, don't turn on whether or not right, people's conscientious obligations are in fact produced positive or negative externalities. The negative part may matter because it, it implicates the harm principle at, at a certain point. But the right to liberty of conscience doesn't depend upon your conscience producing the morally best outcomes or the best outcomes for the rest of society. Yeah. Is there a set of, like a certain rubric that courts use to distinguish, you know, what is a religion from what is not a religion? Because you just sort of presented the extremes. We have the church of marijuana, you know, no book, no established churches versus Judaism, 5,000 years old, that has a book. Yeah. Um, so, so, <laughs> Yeah, so you're quite right about that. The, the, the court, the, the U.S. Supreme Court, but this is not atypical, uh, has resolutely avoided defining religion. 
okay? I have not. I have a whole chapter in here about that. <laughs> Partly because I think if you want to ask the question whether the reasons for toleration are specific to religion, you have to have some view about what, what religion is. But the courts, to go back to your question, have avoided this. And they have avoided it partly for a kind of, you might say, establishment clause reason. Namely, the court shouldn't define what religion is. You might think that's partly what religious institutions do. Okay? Um, but the real reason is, is because it's hard and they don't want to tie their hands right, uh, too much going into the future. So what they typically do is they do a kind of reasoning by analogy, for, or reasoning by analogy to some paradigm cases. So the bottom line is, the more it looks like Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, right, the more likely you are to prevail. Okay? Um, and that's usually how it goes. But it tends to be very sort of incohate. Okay? Now, in the case of the, the, the church of, of marijuana, right, it was, as it were, it was just all too transparent, right, you know that there wasn't <laughs> this, you know, they couldn't point to the sacred text from the 14th century, you know. I mean, it had obviously just been cooked up in order to bring what was a specious legal challenge to laws prohibiting the use of, of marijuana. Now, the, the U.S. Supreme Court's official position is whether you have a colorable religious objection to a law does not turn on whether your religion is one of the established or recognized religions. It turns on the sincerity of your religious commitment. That's what the court said. Right? So officially, right, that would get the court into the business of adjudicating sincerity of belief. Okay? Now, since we don't have very good tests for sincerity of, of belief, right, you can't quite observe it, what the courts really do is it turns out that the sincere religious objectors always have religious beliefs that look vaguely familiar, right? Even if they aren't necessarily a member of a particular Protestant denomination, it's always the case that the ones who win are ones who have beliefs you can sort of recognize as, yeah, that's a little bit like this, uh, this aspect of, you know, Episcopalianism or, or whatever the case might be. But you're quite right, they do not define religion. They do not. Can you talk a little bit about what your definitions were in your book? <laughs> okay, so um, I'll give you the very quick version of it. Um, I think that claims of religious conscience are distinguished by uh, having three characteristics. Right, The first characteristic they share with all claims of conscience, namely that um, the believer has a sense that there are certain categorical demands he or she must comply with. Right? Certain things that must be done or must not be done. Right? And of course, that's why conscience and religious conscience can come into conflict with, with the law. Now, I should say, I think most religious believers in the United States right, don't actually treat most of the demands of their religion as categorical. I think most religious believers are actually, shall we say, casual. And I don't mean that pejoratively. I think it's the dominant form. And that's why, you know, so if the law says you can't do something that happens to conflict, many religious believers say, well, you know, I don't want to get in trouble. Okay? This is why, by contrast, a lot of the religious liberty litigation in the United States, not only religious liberty, involves Jehovah's Witnesses. 
because Jehovah's Witnesses are not casual, right? They take the categorical demands very seriously, and they're not interested in what the law says. If the law, man-made law, conflicts with their religious obligations, they're not going to do it. Okay. So, but that doesn't distinguish religious conscience. I think there are two other things that are crucial in thinking about religious claims of conscience. Right? One is that I think it's characteristic of all religions that at least some beliefs, and I emphasize some, not all, that some beliefs in the religion are taken to be, as I put it, insulated from ordinary standards of reasons and evidence. And what I'm trying to capture here is the colloquial idea that in all religions, some beliefs are held on faith. They're not held on the basis that they satisfy ordinary standards of you know, evidence from regular life, like you know, perceptual reports are generally veridical. It's reasonable to believe the you know, auditorium is full of students and so on. Right? And, you know, and the sciences involve a kind of systematization of these ordinary standards of evidence. It's characteristic of religious claims of conscience that at least some beliefs, not all, but some beliefs, are taken to be insulated from those kinds of evidential demands. And then the third characteristic is that I take it all religions have at some level a concern with some of the doctrines, some of the beliefs, right, and the institutional practices are concerned with what I call existential consolation. Mm-hmm. Um, Seems a shame to bring this up at one in the afternoon on a nice sunny day, but uh, everybody in this room will be dead at some point. Um, everyone will suffer. Everyone will suffer loss. Right? And all religions in various ways try to speak to the need to console and reconcile people to the unhappy and inescapable facts about the, the human, human situation. Right? Um, You'll notice that there's no part in this definition that has anything to do with deism or belief in God. And I think that's a non-starter. It's a non-starter because one of my assumptions is, uh, and here I share the court's approach, right? If you come up with an account of religion in which it turns out Buddhism or Catholicism is not a religion, something went wrong, right? Now it's just a stipulative definition. And the problem is, is Buddhism right, does not involve theism or most forms of Buddhism do not, okay? So uh, theism is, a complica- is, is not really, I think, a relevant constraint. On the other hand, Buddhism shares with other religions the characteristics that some of the beliefs are held as a matter of Buddhist faith and not because right, they're insulated from ordinary standards of reasons and evidence, right? So Buddhists believe in reincarnation not because there's powerful empirical scientific evidence for reincarnation, but because it's part of the way that we conceive of the nature of the universe, our place within the universe, and sort of what the goals of life are right, within uh, Buddhist religion. Reincarnation is interpreted a lot of different ways in Buddhism, so I'm glossing over a lot of, uh, a lot of differences. So that's, that's the short version. Do you think there's a principled or qualitative difference between exceptions for military service and other legal obligations? Yeah. Well, I think one of the reasons that courts have found a way to recognize non-religious conscientious objection to military service um, is because uh, military service does indeed impose uh, more serious burdens uh, than certain other kinds of laws. Right? 
the law that says you can't chew peyote right, is not as uh, burdensome as the law that says you have to serve in the military and kill other people and risk being killed, killed yourself. That's probably what has prompted the courts, together with the recognition that some people have conscientious objections to military service that aren't specifically religious um, in, in character. Um, you know, now, even in the United States, in, in the wake of these court decisions in the late 60s, early 70s, that interpreted the Selective Service Registration Act to encompass non-religious conscientious objection to military service, conscientious objection was defined in a kind of funny way. The only conscientious objection to military service that counted was a conscientious commitment to pacifism entirely. All right? And so that meant that you couldn't, right? and now in a way this just seems very strange, seems not to make any sense of, of how we ordinarily talk, right? you might have a conscientious objection to the invasion of Iraq in 2003 and not have a conscientious objection to fighting World War II and defeating the Nazis. Okay? But that kind of nuance of conscience doesn't have any legal, legal standing in the United States. So you had to establish a conscientious commitment to pacifism, opposition to all war. Right? And then, interestingly, there evolved right, sort of protocols for how you did that. Right? And so advice would be given to people. Right? Write lots of letters to the editor. Okay? Show your involvement in pacifistic movements. Right? Join organizations where people in the organization come and testify, yes, John Smith always came to our pacifist meetings, right? and, and so on. So in a way, it was, again, the courts were looking for some kind of evidential base for making a determination as to whether someone's conscientious objection to war was a genuine objection of conscience as opposed to just right, self-interested opportunism. Okay? Because we wouldn't create exemptions from laws for self-interested opportunism for lots of obvious reasons. People would stop at stop signs in Hyde Park even less than they presently do, right, <laughs> if there were those kinds of exemptions. Yes. Yeah. yeah in a very interesting paper of yours, you compare and contrast uh, Socrates and Nietzsche. You say Socrates is the father of the Occidental philosophy and he believes in truth, right. whereas Nietzsche new, very important figure, doesn't believe in truth, but in competing values. So would you think that religion should, could be described as a value? And do you use niche uh, in your book to give you an argument in one of the other direction? Okay. So I don't want to risk derailing this entirely into a discussion of Socrates and Nietzsche, as interesting as I find that. But we, we can talk about maybe that um, uh, independently. Um, uh, here's how Nietzsche does actually, though, figure in this book, um, which is Nietzsche held the view, which I think is correct, and I think is a, points out something that John Stuart Mill didn't quite notice, which is that um, uh, sometimes it's very important to believe things that aren't true. That falsehood right, is often an essential condition of life. Right? Um, so it's very helpful right, for me to believe that you are all enjoying this talk, whatever the truth is, right? <laughs> because if I held the correct belief, God forbid, right, I might not be able to go on. 
There's a psychological literature, right? There's a psycho it's a slightly contested psychological literature, but there's this literature about the extent to which people accurately understand how others perceive them. And there's a lot of evidence that suggests that the people who have the clearest perception how, of how others perceive them are all clinically depressed. Right? In other words, a certain level of misunderstanding about how you are perceived may really be essential part of sort of ordinary functioning. And, and the reason I bring this up, and it comes up in the context of the book, and this is again in response to sort of the, the new atheist types like Richard Dawkins and Hitchens and, and Sam Harris and so on, is they tend to argue in the form, well, religion involves false beliefs, therefore it has no value whatsoever. And that seems to me just manifestly a non sequitur. I think that's something Nietzsche understood. That is, whether or not you think particular religious beliefs are true or false doesn't settle any of the interesting questions about the value of religion, the reasons to protect liberty of conscience, and, uh, and, and so on. So, yeah, in the back. In the Smith case you referenced, uh, the court said that Congress uh, wasn't obligated to carve out exceptions uh, that, to laws that may affect religion. Uh, but might it violate the Establishment Clause if they choose to do that? Okay, good. So, uh, sorry, what, what the court said there was that the, the courts don't have to carve out an exception for the law, right, in order, uh, in order to protect the free exercise of religion. Now, different question, your question, could Congress, right, carve out such exceptions? Well, that's what they did with RIFRA. They basically said, we're going to enact laws but if it turns out our laws burden free exercise of religion, then unless it can be shown that there's no other way to accomplish the purpose of the law, right, that's roughly the standard, I'm overstating it a little, um, then there ought to be an exemption granted. Right? Now, uh, one could ask whether that violates the Establishment Clause. As the law presently stands, the answer is no, it doesn't. That, uh, that, the, that the, ch the constitutional challenge to RIFRA was not an Establishment Clause challenge. It was rather that the court was, that the Congress overstepped in its authority in purporting to say what the First Amendment really meant as applied to the states. But as I said, many of the states did the same thing as the Federal Congress. They enacted state-level RIFRAs that basically constrained what the legislature could do to bring it back to sort of a pre-Smith exemptions regime. Um, well, I think the, the simple answer to that is it's very difficult to enact constitutional amendments. Um, and, the, and there was an argument, right? They tried to make an argument that uh, it was constitutional even as, even as applied uh, to the, the states. This, Douglas Laycock, who I mentioned before, actually wrote the original legislation Riffer, and he thought it was constitutional, but the, the court, as I said, didn't, didn't buy that. And as I say, it wasn't surprising. But remember, the, the, it, it is not a requirement of the text of the United States Constitution that the Supreme Court has the final say about what the meaning of the, the Constitution is. Right? That is just a practice that has become entrenched and is now pretty widely accepted. 
every now and then someone makes some noise about it, but so far it's, it's, hanging, on, it's hanging on pretty well. But I think that's the main reason, is they wanted a quick response to a decision that was thought to be very hostile to, to religion, notwithstanding that it was written by Justice Scalia. That didn't give it a free pass, right? There was a real uproar after Employment Division versus Smith, political uproar. Yeah, if one of the, the primary concerns with exemptions to new, uh, neutral laws of general applicability is that uh, there's instances where they'll impose a cost on society. I mean, the example of the California of the vaccine, I think, is a good one in that regard. But there, there also seems to be examples where that's not the case, and the, the Smith case is probably a good example of that. Why don't we just measure the costs on a case-by-case basis? It seems something that wouldn't be terribly difficult to do in yeah. many instances. So my own view is actually closer to that. And this, so this didn't come up in Smith. But it seems to me that as a matter of equality, anyone should have the right to challenge on grounds of conscience a law and seek an exemption if the exemption is not a burden-shifting exemption. Right? And I think it's important to emphasize that a lot of decisions are not burden-shifting exemptions. Smith might be an example, but I, I think there's even easier ones. I mean. My favorite example, you know, and this, this really does come up, you know, every state has a law that when you're photographed for the driver's license, you can't have any headgear on, right? You can't wear something on your head. Why? Because the purpose of the photograph is to make you identifiable. Now, um, Sikh men, uh, Sikhs have an obligation to wear a turban, which, which isn't quite right. They have an obligation not to show their hair, so the turban serves that, that purpose. Right? Um, Orthodox Jews right, will wear a skull cap. But it's not like this headgear, as it were, interferes with the purpose of the law. So to permit an exemption in cases like that right, doesn't seem to shift any, any burdens onto, onto others. A lot of exemptions, I think, are of that, uh, that character. Um, the problem is, is that some of them some of them are not, right? So the current challenges to the, the Affordable Health Care Act requirement that insurance cover contraceptives, right? And, and put, put to one side the question as to whether, right, one can really have a conscientious objection to insurance plans funded in large part by the employees that provide services that the business owner objects to, right? Put, put that aside, okay? So it seems to me that's one of, one of the issues here. But that's a case where the exemptions are going to shift burdens. Right? They're going to shift real burdens onto the employees of companies that want access to certain contraceptive services and won't, won't be able to get them. That's where all the hard cases come, because a lot of these exemptions do, do involve precisely that kind of problem. Yeah. Yes? Building on that, uh, what would you say to the response that instead of granting more exemptions, rather abolish the law and offer incentives to behave in that way. And then if someone doesn't want to, they just don't need incentive. Yeah. Well, look, so if that were sufficient, right, then um, we might use that in lots of contexts. But I think there's a reason the law sometimes opts for prohibitions, right? Um, and the prohibitions, of course, they come with their own incentives as well. <laughs> Namely, if you violate them certain consequences uh, befall. It, it might work in certain contexts. I agree. It's, it might work in certain contexts. Um, 
there's also, and, and you see this actually with exemptions to military service in, in other countries which still have mandatory military service. Um, you know, so there's the evidential question, how do you tell whether a conscientious objection is genuinely conscientious and not just opportunistic? Well, one thing a lot of legal systems do is if you want to opt out of your two years of mandatory military service, you're going to have three or four years of civilian service. Right? And that's a way of, as it were, putting a price on the exemption that is intended in part to sort out who's really thinks this conflicts with their conscience versus who would just prefer not to serve in, in, in the military. Good timing. Okay, we'll stop here. Thanks very much. This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. Welcome to uh, today's Schwartz Lecture. Uh, the Schwartz Lecture was established in 1974 in honor of Judge Ulysses S. Schwartz. Its purpose is to bring distinguished lawyers, judges, from a range of different walks of life, the academy, from journalism, from government, to share their experiences and perspectives with our faculty and students. Judge Schwartz was a longtime supporter of the university and of the law school. He began his career in 1910 as a special assistant prosecutor here in the city of Chicago, and he ended his career as a member of the Illinois Supreme Court in 1974. The following year, his friends and, and family established this lecture. His son, John Schwartz, is a graduate of this law school and became a federal bankruptcy judge here in the Northern District of Illinois, including serving from 1978 to 1989 as its chief judge. And today, we're thrilled to welcome Joan Biskupic, our uh, lecturer today. She is CNN's legal analyst. She is an accomplished journalist who has covered the Supreme Court for more than 30 years. She has an undergraduate degree from Marquette, a master's in English from the University of Oklahoma, and a JD from Georgetown. She has held a number of prominent positions, reporting on legal affairs at USA Today, editor in charge of legal affairs at Reuters, a reporter covering the Supreme Court at the Washington Post, and now as legal affairs analyst at CNN. She is author of several books, including biographies of Justices Sandra Day O'Connor, Antonin Scalia, Sonia Sotomayor, and most recently, Chief Justice John Roberts. Her latest book, The Chief, The Life and Turbulent Times of John, Robert, of John Roberts, has received in tremendous praise, and praise for its meticulous reporting, its compelling storytelling, and its deep knowledge of the law and of the court's inner workings. We're pleased to have her today, and we're also pleased to have, to guide our discussion today, Professor Jeffrey Stone. Professor Stone is the Edward Levy Distinguished Service Professor. 
Uh, he is, of course, a graduate of our law school. He clerked for Justice Brennan. He is a former dean of the law school and former provost of the university, an influential constitutional law scholar, and a longtime editor of the Supreme Court Review. Please join me in welcoming today's Schwartz lecturer, Joan Biskupic. So, Joan, it's wonderful to have you here. Thank you. Um, how did it happen that you wound up spending your time writing these biographies of Supreme Court justices? Uh, well, first of all, thank you all for having me. Thanks, Jeff. <coughs> Thanks, Dean think it's Can you hear me? Oh, yeah, the part about turn it on. They all tell me not to turn it on until you're really ready. Can you hear me now? Okay, great, yes. That way you didn't pick up all the little quiet things we were talking about before. <laughs> but that was the important part. And the most important part is thank you very much for having me. Uh, as, as, uh, I've, as Jeff knows, I, I grew up on the south side uh, and uh, spent a lot of time in uh, the Chicago area before I went off to school and uh, have come to visit many times and, and just love Hyde Park. So happy to be here. I got interested in biographies uh, because I wanted to know more about what made these justices who they are, you know, what their early influences were, their families. My very first one was Sandra Day O'Connor. And because I had covered politics along the way in my journalistic career and the law, I was interested in the fact that this was a, a state legislator, a very successful state legislator. Uh, many people don't know that Sandra Day O'Connor was the first female state majority leader nationwide. And then she came to the Supreme Court, in my mind, knowing how to count votes. So I got very interested in Sandra Day O'Connor as someone who was not just the first woman on the Supreme Court, but a real politician on the court. And then in the process of doing that research, I, um, I love archives, and I spent a lot of time in, at the Reagan archives in Simi Valley researching Justice O'Connor's nomination, and that got me deeper into Antonin Scalia's uh, papers there with um, uh, looking at the Reagan choice, and I thought he was much more the manifestation of the Reagan agenda. So that's how I pivoted to uh, Justice Scalia. And you know, so so once you get into it, once you learn, start learning about these people's lives, your your appetite becomes quite whetted, and you you just can't stop. <laughs> so, what surprised you most about Justice Sandra Day O'Connor in the course of writing this biography of her? Well, actually, it's a Brennan connection, and I'm glad the dean referred to your clerkship for William Brennan. Um, uh, back in 1993, when I was at the Washington Post. Uh, a couple colleagues and I delved into the newly opened papers of Thurgood Marshall. And I don't think many people in this room would have remembered what happened over that ordeal, although you, Jeff, might remember. Thurgood Marshall gave his papers to the Library of Congress without his colleagues knowing about it. But we found out, and I was working with Bob Woodward, a man by the name of Ben Weiser, who's now at the uh, New York Times, and an editor of mine, Fred Barbash. And we found out about these papers being open before anybody else did. And so we went and delved through all of these papers. And in May 1993, did a project showing you know, the secrets of the Supreme Court through the eyes of Thurgood Marshall's secret papers. And you know, it was a wonderful series to be part of, but there was this one document I found that planted the seed of Sandra Day O'Connor and a very surprising seed that got me interested in her. And it was a letter 
that William Brennan had sent to Thurgood Marshall in a, um, in a criminal defense case. And Brennan was explaining to his very good friend Thurgood Marshall while he, why he had bailed on him. And he said, Sandra forced my hand by threatening to lead the revolution. And I thought, Sandra Day O'Connor? <laughs> threatened this master of five votes. I mean, that was what, as, as most of you know, I'm sure, uh, Bill Brennan's reputation for almost all of his tenure that he could pull five votes out of a hat even be, when it became a much more conservative court. And he's saying that Sandra Day O'Connor forced his hand, and that got me really interested in her. And I was able to parlay the research that I had done uh, in the Marshall Papers into something bigger. And what surprised me was you know, how she was really operating. Mm -hmm. You know, just yesterday in, in the class I was in, um, uh, First Amendment class, we were talking about um, Dun & Bradstreet versus Green Moss. And in that case, if I'm remembering right, and I didn't go back and double check, but I remember, I'm almost positive it was that case where Justice O'Connor sends a note to Lewis Powell, which I found in the Powell archives down in Lexington, Virginia, that said, if I get with Byron early enough, I think we can move him over, Byron being Byron White. Now, Byron White doesn't sign what was the plurality opinion there, but I kind of remember finding those sorts of documents and being surprised at how much maneuvering behind the scenes Justice O'Connor was doing that you know most of you in this room probably wouldn't have suspected. So O'Connor was the first woman justice to serve right. on the Supreme Court. Um, how did that play out in practice? I mean, what was it like for her... Uh, to what extent was she treated differently because she was the first woman? Um, was uh, it an issue? Oh, yeah, it, it completely was. It, she came on in 1981, and the reason she was selected was actually because she was a woman. Uh, Ronald Reagan, uh, trailing a bit in the polls in fall of 1980, as he's running against Jimmy Carter, decides to pledge that he would put the first woman on the Supreme Court. So, uh, and it, it helped him a little bit, and Jimmy Carter said something like, well, everyone knew I was going to appoint a woman, but it was kind of like, you know, Ronald Reagan saying this was uh, potentially a, a big deal, but there were a lot of other reasons why, why Reagan won in, in November of 1980. But, uh, so what happens is in March, I, I love finding out this chronology, March 26th, which happens to be Sandra Day O'Connor's birthday, March 26th of 1981, Potter Stewart confides in William French Smith, then the Attorney General, that he's going to be stepping down. This is March 26th of 1981. Four days later, four or five days later, is when Reagan was shot. So Reagan doesn't know for actually a couple weeks that he's about to have this momentous first nomination to the Supreme Court, which is you know, a very big deal to be just a few months into your presidency and suddenly have this opening. And of course, he did then look at a, look for women. And uh, Sandra Day O'Connor, uh, you know, she was only a, a state intermediate court judge at the right. time. She was on an appeals court in Arizona, but boy, was that woman connected. So not only did um, she had had a, developed a friendship with Chief Justice Warren Burger, she had plenty of people who had, she had been Nixon's campaign manager in Arizona in 1972, which people you know that doesn't seem like that would have been possible, but it was. So she was really connected, and uh, Ken Starr. Gosh, you know all these names that we know now. Ken Starr was one of the two Reagan aides who went out to Arizona to interview her. 
And he said to me, I can't believe I'm going to Arizona for this intermediate state court judge. What's she going to know? But that woman was so prepared. She had, of course, boned up because she was all about the homework. And plus, she made him a salmon salad. You know, So she, like, she did all these things that would reinforce the idea that I am one of the good women. And, uh, but I'm also a smart woman. And, and then when she, you know, Reagan on the spot, when he interviewed her in the Oval Office, they could, you know, she could talk about the law, but then they could talk horses. And he was sold. Um, you might say a word about uh, O'Connor's relationship with William Rehnquist. Oh, yes. Well, now we know. I knew that they had been friends. I knew that they had dated. But when I did my book, I did not have a lot of her personal correspondence. I had all her legislative correspondence uh, in Arizona, which was really helpful. And then I had her correspondence with other justices, but I didn't have her diaries which Evan Thomas, who, um, my book came out in 05, and Evan Thomas just did a recent biography of her, and he had access to her diaries and more personal correspondence. And William Rehnquist had actually proposed marriage in a letter mm -hmm. uh, to her. So I hadn't realized that. Uh, but they both... This is when they were in college. Yes, right, right, right. They go into Stanford together. And, um, but they both ended up in very happy marriages and then socialized together in Phoenix, playing charades and going on picnics and doing all these things with their, their families. So it was uh, that's kind of a, another quirk of history because if she had said yes, she would have never been on the Supreme Court. Right. Yeah. And she broke his heart when he, he proposed. Right. And she said, no yeah. thanks. Yes, right, right, right. She had already met John uh, O'Connor, whom she married, was also a law student there. And, uh, right. He turned her head a little bit further than Bill Rehnquist. So what about Justice Antonin Scalia, um, who was on the faculty here for a yes. number of years? Um, what's interesting about him from your perspective? Well, I, I love to tell the story about, um, well, first of all, just in terms of fi family dynamics, his father had come over from Sicily knowing no English when he arrived, ends up getting a PhD at Columbia, becomes quite an accomplished professor of romance languages, a collector of lyrics, uh, lyrics, a textualist himself, and as we all know, Justice Scalia became a textualist of the law, and uh, so he had a, a, a very interesting uh, family background, uh, Italian background. His, parent, his mother was one of seven children, his father was uh, one of just two. But he was an only child, and not only was he an only child, he was the only child of his generation. None of his aunts and uncles had had children. So thinking of Justice Scalia's personality and thinking of him being an only child and an only child of his generation was quite uh, meaningful. And I, um, I, I like to tell the story of when I was able to get him to really break down and sit for 12 on-the-record recorded interviews, and it came, I think I told you after this wedding that I ran into him at, the justices, you know, I do these books as a journalist. I don't do them as authorized biographies. I do them as a journalist, and, you know, you have to kind of convince a justice to sit for interviews, and it always works out. So when they initially start out saying, I will not talk to you, you can talk to my colleagues, you can talk to my friends, you can talk to family, but I will not talk to you, I usually say, okay. You know, because I know you will talk. And with Justice Scalia, I, I love to tell the story of what, how he... And, you know, we're not talking about any kind of sort of mild-mannered individual who doesn't know his own, didn't know his own self. So he was saying, no, I don't want to talk to you at all. But I ran into him at a, a wedding of a mutual friend. I don't travel in those kinds of circles, but I happened to be at this wedding of a former clerk of his and uh, a woman who I knew. And uh, he comes up to me, and I'm with my husband, and everybody's drinking. You don't look as formidable at a wedding. And uh, 
he says, well, what do you think you're finding out so far? And I say, you know, I've, I've been going through the archives in Trenton, immigration records, that's where his family had settled, and I've also gone through all the New York Times articles that referred to your father. And I said, do you know the first time that your father, you know, as accomplished as he became, was mentioned in the New York Times? And he said, no. And I said, it was in 1935 when he won a fellowship to study Romance languages from Colombia back in uh, Florence and, and Rome. And I thought, you know, the father had gone on to be this very important scholar, and I thought that was an interesting thing I had said about finding this fellowship. And he said, yes, but did you know I was conceived on that fellowship? <laughs> and I said, no amount of research would have gotten me that little factoid. So, so then this was a Saturday wedding, and the following Monday he called me up and he said, what else have you found out? And that was the start of, as I say, a, a very beautiful relationship. And uh, he, he loved, you know, what I was able to find out about all his family. And then he, you know, to his, he didn't like everything. He didn't like much of what ended up in the book, but he liked it enough that he kept talking to me. And when the American Bar Association did a salute in conjunction with the Supreme Court, you know, in the great hall of the court, they used a lot of material from the book. So I was, you know, he liked it enough that it, Upon his death, they didn't think it was going to hurt him to <laughs> decide it. Do you remember when you called me when you were working on the book about Scalia? I do, because that was a, we had that kind of long-running controversy involving you and the justice. But before he passed, you made your peace, right? Yeah, because of you. Oh, okay. Because well, bringing people together, that's it. <laughs> yes. No, I, I had written a, a, an op-ed in, in, I think it was the New York Times, I don't remember, I criticizing the court um, in a, for a decision in the abortion case in which they had, in a 5-4 decision, essentially overruled a prior decision simply because Justice Alito had replaced Justice O'Connor, who had been in the majority in the prior case, and then when Alito joined the court, they basically flipped. And all five justices in the majority were Catholic. And so I wrote this op-ed, which was called Our Catholic Justices, and talked about the fact of... Um, uh, I wondered whether they had been as careful in separating their religious views from their ju from the responsibilities as justices. And I mentioned that I clerked for Justice Brennan the year Roe v. Wade was decided, and I'd watched him struggle with trying to reconcile his religious views as a Catholic with his views as a justice. And um, so I was naive about how provocative and controversial this would be, I have to say. And, and, and Scalia was furious about this. And I kept hearing from people that, you know, he said, I'll never come back to the law school again as long as there's stones on the faculty. Right. And, um, and Joan then called me because you had interviewed him. Yes, and he was, and, you know, that's him. He sits behind this, sitting behind this huge desk and, you know, I'm, I'm never going to set foot on the campus and I will probably won't take their clerks and I'm, you know, like, and I'm, I'm just going to stomp my feet until I, you know, I drop dead kind of thing, you know, because he, he had that way about him, which made him, you know, again, a very colorful figure. And right. I, called, I called you to tell you, to see, to get your response for the book. Right. And so the reason your book was responsible for that being put behind us is that um, when that happened, the issue became so public, and Scalia's, because you described his response when you asked him about it in yeah. your interview, and it became embarrassing to Scalia. And I then heard from some mutual friends that Scalia would really be open to an apology on my part. <laughs> so I crafted a letter in which I said, um, I was very sorry that he was upset <laughs> by the, by the op-ed. And he called me immediately thereafter and said, Jeff, as a good Catholic, I forgive you. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that put it aside. Well, it was, you know, to, to the credit of both of you that you would do it and that he would, yeah, he, 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 
You know, it was interesting, uh, his personality. There was one day where I showed up, and he had been sitting for tape-recorded interviews. And I, fortunately, I got a tip from someone in his chambers that he suddenly was going to say to me, I don't want to have any of these on the record, which was a, a very useful thing to know is about to happen to you. Because you're thinking, I can't live with this. I can't have this happen. I have to, you know, I'm not going to start running material by him after we've gone so far down the road. So it gave me time to think about it. But he, you know, he, and then when I got into his chambers, he said, you know, I've decided, Joan, I think I should, I don't think I should talk on the record. You just come to me and tell me what you want to use. And I said, no, we can't do it this way. You know, we've already, you know, the, the horse is out of the barn. We've already done this this way. We just can't. And he pushed back, and then I pushed back. And then he said, okay. And, but what I always said about him was that I could talk to him like that. Justice O'Connor, I wouldn't even be alive right now. If I had tried that on her, she was so tough. She was, you know, and everyone used to say to me, oh, you know, Scalia just seems like he would be so much harsher and tougher to deal with. No, he was, you know, he could, he could back down, as he obviously right. did with you. But uh, Justice O'Connor, boy, man, she, she didn't become the first woman justice for nothing. You know, she was very determined. So what about Justice Sotomayor? Um, can you tell us about Sure. Her? Now, that book was uh, not a straight biography, the way the others were, because she was, um, as I was deciding I wanted to write about our first uh, Latina justice, I knew that she had her own book in the works. So I made it more of a political history, which was, frankly, a lot of fun to do as a journalist. Because as you're reporting on who's up, who's down, who are presidents looking for in their nominees, how do these people emerge? You know, how do out of all the very smart people sitting in this room, going to law school, bound for clerkships of various sorts, bound for important government jobs, bound for great scholarship, who emerges in the pile to become a justice? And that's what this, this tale was about. How was she the first Hispanic justice? How was it not Miguel Estrada during the um, George W. Bush administration? How was it not Jose Cabranes during the Clinton administration? You know, why was it her? And I had covered a lot of those nomination fights, and I had, and what was intriguing about following her trajectory was seeing how many times along the way administrations said, oh, we're looking at all these Hispanics when they really weren't. You know, it wasn't until, obviously, President Obama in 2009 chose her. And so that was kind of looking at her as someone who was very much of an actor in her own journey. Unlike David Souter, who mm -hmm. we both know who he succeeded, William Brennan kind of was, you know, plucked there by pals from New Hampshire who said, let's make it him. Whereas Sonia Sotomayor just very much helped herself get on the district court, uh, selected, recommended by Moynihan, Sen uh, Senator Moynihan, but nominated by George H.W. Bush, and then, you know, just what happened along the way. And it was during that episode that she first met. John Roberts, mm -hmm. who was a deputy solicitor general at the time and had a hand in actually not so much encouraging her nomination at first. Um, what, what about her role on the court itself? I mean, how, does she, how, how well does she function on the court with the other justices? Um, and do you have a sense of how, whether she's pleased with her role on the court? I think she's very pleased. I think she breaks away from the nine. Uh, one thing that I was told as I was doing my reporting both on her and then, you know, with the subsequent appointment of uh, Elena Kagan in 2010 is that Justice Sotomayor sees herself often as one justice, one justice working on her own. 
idea of what the law should be, what her mission should be, and probably many people in this room have seen her speak about her books. She's very active outside of the court. She's very active as a single justice making her wishes known. Just on Monday, she dissented alone, if I'm remembering right, mm -hmm. in one of the orders. Whereas Justice Kagan is very aware of herself as one of nine, uh, negotiating with the nine, trying to uh, broker compromises, trying to find the middle ground. So I think, th I think they're both very satisfied with what their individual roles are, but Justice Sotomayor will probably be remembered when the time comes down the line for someone who made her mark on the court, but also very much outside the court. She talks about wanting to reach as many children as she can. Mm -hmm. You know, the, her most recent book is a book for children called Just to Ask, which is about her struggle with diabetes. So she sees herself in a, um, in a role that is a much broader presence than most of the other justices do. So John Roberts, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about his, his personal background? Sure. And I should tell you, you know, just one thing I like to remind folks about is, you know, we've had 45 presidents to date, but only 17 chief justices. So that tells you the magnitude of his role in our lives. And, you know, he's, uh, he's been on the court since 2005, so we're just in his 14th year. Uh, and he's, a, for all uh, appearances, seems healthy and will be going on for at least twice that amount of time. He's only 64 years old. And he's, uh, he grew up in northern Indiana, uh, not too far from here. Uh, you know, family would fly into Midway often enough. And uh, uh, in a beach community called Long Beach that used to be a vacation area for uh, wealthy Chicagoans. And his parents, his father was very much a product of the steel industry when the steel industry, when steel was king. You know, and so that was a very hierarchical world that his father was part of. And I, I liken that in the book a lot to, you know, the hierarchical world of the federal judiciary. But his parents, uh, in some ways, married across the tracks. Uh, his father, uh, John Glover Roberts Sr., uh, came from an English-Irish family that settled in the Pennsylvania area, mining coal country and then steel country uh, back in the mid-1800s. And then his mother, uh, her, her uh, family names were Podrasky and... Uh, Gumska. Nobody was really quite sure how to pronounce the other family name in that family, but it was a Czech. You know, the borders were always shifting with the Hungarian Empire, but, you know, essentially Slovakian. They came about uh, 20, 30 years later uh, to this region of Pennsylvania and were not as uh, well off. They weren't as educated. They, they struggled much more with um, more menial jobs, you know, as a whole, as a whole. So uh, the father, who was the youngest of 10 children, marries... Rosemary, uh, his mother, and uh, they essentially said, and the mother never went to college. And that was her uh, lifelong regret. Uh, you know, anybody in the family who talked about his mother talked about her regret of never going to college, and in many ways living out some of her dreams through her only son. He was the only boy in a family of four. He had three sisters, one older, two younger. He was, as anybody could observe, even now in his life, very, very smart. And I love reading this letter. I brought it with me because I will often start more formal speeches with a letter that he wrote uh, on December 22, 1968, when he was an eighth grader in a parochial school. You know, he grew up in an area that was a little better off than what you would, you know, experience in many of the. Um, 
in, in, in Chicagoland here, but you know, he had a lot of the traditional upbringing that many Chicagoans had. You know, went to a parochial school, attached to a church, and he was essentially expected to go to a, a parochial high school. You know, back then it was all boys or all girls, but he had the good fortune of, uh, around the time that he was applying to college, uh, high school, pardon me, a very fancy Catholic boarding school had opened up. And, you know, in the model of East Coast elite schools. And he knew he wanted to go to that. And he wrote a letter to the headmaster that says the following. Dear Mr. Moore, and he's only 13 at the time, the main reason I would like to attend La Lumere School is to get a better education. I've always wanted to stay ahead of the crowd, and I feel that the competition at La Lumere will force me to work as hard as I can. At an ordinary high school, it would probably be easy to stay ahead. I realize that going to La Lumiere will mean a lot of study and hard work, but I feel confident that these labors will pay off in large amounts when it comes time to apply for admission to college. I'm sure that by attending and doing my best at La Lumiere, I will assure myself of a fine future. And then he closes. I won't be content to get a good job by getting a good education. I want to get the best job by getting the best education. Sincerely yours, John Roberts, Jr. Now, of course, he was accepted. He becomes number one in his class. And again, you know, this isn't, this isn't the kind of education that your average Midwestern college Catholic boy would get. But he was able to get this. He then goes to Harvard, does Harvard College in three years, goes to Harvard Law School, uh, wins you know, all sorts of honors uh, along the way during his time at Harvard. But he bristled. He did not like uh, Cambridge. He, uh, you know, was... We're, we're still in the sort of 60s fallout in the early 70s. Didn't like the lingering anti-war protests. Uh, pretty much, you know, stuck to his studies and, and did those very, very well. And worked so hard that uh, lots of his pals remember him either holding that, clutching a bottle of Pepto-Bismol or sometimes just being exhausted from, from study. So he, it, you know, he obviously is super smart and much of it came naturally, but he was not going to take anything for granted. Um, and how did he go from there to being on the Supreme Court? Okay, so he, um, he graduates from Harvard uh, Law School. He was managing editor of the Law Review, and he um, is tapped for a clerkship with Henry Friendly, who was on the Second Circuit, and many people regarded Judge Henry Friendly as the greatest appeals court judge of his era. Uh, Merrick Garland had uh, a name familiar to probably everyone in this room had had that clerkship two years earlier and had a little bit of a, a, a hand in helping him to that spot and then once he got with Henry Friendly he was applying to um, clerkships at the Supreme Court and uh, and it was a, a, a very strong match between him and Bill Rehnquist mm-hmm. and I as you know Jeff I, I paint in this book this kind of dichotomy that the chief always feels between the model of Henry Friendly, who was quite a judge's judge, you know, much more of a neutral professional jurist, versus William Rehnquist, super smart, first in his class at Stanford, but very ideologically driven. And, you know, where does, where does John Roberts fall? And right after clerking for William Rehnquist, he opts for the more ideological route, gets a job in the Reagan administration, coincidentally recommended by William Rehnquist to Ken Starr, who at the time was working as chief of staff to the attorney general under Reagan. 
So John Roberts works first in the Justice Department and then in the White House Counsel's Office, makes some deep, deep pals there. In fact, he is still very close to Fred Fielding, who was White House Counsel under um, Ronald Reagan, and all those good friends from from that group, they still get together. They were together for uh, Fred Fielding's 80th birthday last spring. And so he, he gets this core group of people. And, and, and in some ways, he replicates this, this boarding school life. You know, he's got these core men who is, you know, are loyal to him, and he's loyal to them. And uh, I worked very hard to get those people to talk <laughs> as, I, as I went along. And then so he works for Reagan. Uh, then he works in the H.W. Bush administration as Deputy Solicitor General, to Ken Starr, who was Solicitor General. And then he goes off in private practice, and uh, if any of you remember when he was nominated, he had, uh, it was bandied about that he argued 39 cases before the Supreme Court, both in public and private practice. And uh, should we jump ahead to 2005 when he sure. gets the job? Okay, so here we are. <laughs> this is, this is I, I, I remember these weeks so well because, okay, so it's July 1st, 2005. I am finishing up the Sandra Day O'Connor biography, thinking my deadline's January of 2006. You know, I'm cruising along, and on January 1st, uh, July 1st, 2005, she announces she's going to retire. At this moment, as I know you remember, and, and anybody who was sort of watching Supreme Court politics at the time, we all thought Chief Justice Rehnquist would be the one who would leave. He was dying of thyroid cancer. He could hardly speak. He was not spending much time at the court, and everyone thought the next opening was going to be Chief Justice Rehnquist. But Sandra Day O'Connor, who was, I think she was only 75 at the time, she was still young in Supreme Court justice's terms, she had a husband who was very sick with Alzheimer's, and she decided she had to take care of him. And um, so she announces her resignation. And, you know, I remember that moment because, you know, but my book's not done, you know, but I, you know, so I had to quickly do that. And, and here's the interesting thing about John Roberts. John Roberts at that moment is on the DC circuit, but he's only been there for about two years. All the other men, and they were mostly men, almost exclusively men who he was in competition with had been on appeals courts much longer. We had Mike Ludig down on the fourth circuit. We had Sam Alito on the Third Circuit, uh, J. Harvey Wilkinson on the Fourth Circuit, they had all been around appointees of uh, Ronald Reagan or George H.W. Bush. And so John Roberts is looking young. In fact, he was just 50 at the time. He's looking young. He's looking not so experienced. And there's some question about how loyal he's going to be to the cause. But it's O'Connor's seat at this moment. And, you know, she's not only the first woman, but she had you know, in her post-Bush v. Gore, Gore world had moved over a little bit to the center and looked like uh, much more of a centrist jurist than a Ronald Reagan conservative. So there was a lot of politics in the air, and uh, George, H. W., George W. Bush pardon me, chooses John Roberts in part because everyone's thinking, well, let's get somebody who isn't as controversial as, for example, Michael Ludig would have been, and, you know, there'll always be the chief seat coming up, mm-hmm. everyone's thinking. And he seemed like the safer choice. And not to reinforce the whole idea of networking and, uh, you know, a tight little core group, but a man who had a hand in that was Brett Kavanaugh, mm-hmm. who happened to be working for George W. Bush at the time. 
there are more than just 10 people in the world, but it seems like I'm only mentioning 10, <laughs> you know, including Ken Starr over and over, who Brett Kavanaugh did work for in many capacities. So um, George W. Bush clicks with John Roberts, and he decides to nominate him in mid-July 2005 for Sandra Day O'Connor's seat. And Sandra Day O'Connor has a great line about, well, you know, I wish it were a woman, you know, which, but, he, but she still liked uh, John Roberts, and there was a certain you know, symmetry to that because John Roberts had actually helped with her confirmation back in 1981. So what happens then? Uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist dies on September 3rd, so we're just within a few weeks. And what else is happening in the country? Uh, again, some of you might not remember, but it was Hurricane Katrina. Mm -hmm. And the George W. Bush administration was so besieged by complaints about how poorly it had handled the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, you know, people, you know, every, people were in the Superdome down in New Orleans. I mean, it was just a disaster. And, and President Bush had that line, you know, uh, heck of a job, Brownie, yeah, to right. the, the FEMA coordinator who was himself underwater in many ways. So when Chief Justice Rehnquist dies, there was some interest among Vice President Cheney, perhaps to elevate Scalia. There was interest to buy some more conservative members of the administration to look to Mike Ludig, uh, uh, or maybe Jay Wilkinson, who was a little bit older and presented much more of an experienced jurist. And, but George W. Bush wanted no more headaches. I mean, he was just struggling so much with the aftermath of Katrina. John Roberts had presented himself so well with his courtesy visits, initial courtesy visits with senators for the associate justice job that they all walk in on Sunday morning. And it was, uh, the chief died late on a Saturday night. Remember that moment vividly when I got the call on that, too. And, you know, he died late that Saturday night. Sunday morning, uh, President Bush meets with his closest advisors, and the thing he says as they walk in is, I'm going with John Roberts. You know, you can't talk me into Scalia. You can't talk to me into anybody else. It's, you know, it was a, an easy choice at that moment. And John Roberts... Youngest Chief Justice in more than 200 years. Mm -hmm. He was only 50 years old, and you know, here he is, 15 years later, almost. How would you evaluate Roberts' performance in the 14 years now that he's been on the court? I would say it's evolved. You know, when he came in as chief, um, I remember talking to Justice Scalia, saying, you know. Bill Rehnquist had been elevated as chief. He had come on in January of 1972, an appointee of Richard Nixon, and he had spent 14 years as an associate justice, seeing how they all worked together, seeing where the bodies were buried, seeing who was up, who was down, who was petty, who wasn't, who you could work with, who you couldn't. And, you know, so when he became chief in 1986, he sort of knew what was what. And he also had, he knew what he wanted in the law. So if they weren't going to be with him, he was like, fine, cast your votes, I'm moving on. It was, you know, he had that kind of approach to himself. Now John Roberts comes in, and he's, he had clerked there in 79-80 for then Associate Justice Bill Rehnquist. You know, he hadn't really managed things. Mm -hmm. You know, the last managerial job he had essentially had 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 been at the Law Review. But, you know, seriously, you know, he had not been a manager. And here, comes, here he is with eight people who are appointed for life who are certain they're the smartest persons in the room. 
They've been together for 11 years. There hadn't been a change in the Supreme Court since Breyer had come on in 94. So that was tough. He had, he had to figure out how to navigate among a lot of personalities when he was certain he was the smartest person in the room, but they were even, you know, like, so you <laughs> had to deal with that. And then, of course, he had, you know, his original mantra was, I want to decide things as narrowly as possible so that we can get as many votes on as possible. But, you know, you just refer to that Carhartt case where Sam Alito comes on just a few months later. Sam Alito then gets tapped for the O'Connor vacancy, and that made a huge difference, as Jeff was writing. You know, they have Sandra Day O'Connor succeeded by Sam Alito meant a real shift in the law, including mm -hmm. on abortion. And there were a lot of 5-4 decisions that John Roberts didn't want to have to have his court identified with, but those were the breaks. Um, how does he get along with the other justices? Well, I think that that's been a work in progress. I, that was one thing that surprised me, as I, because he presents... You know, he's in very structured settings. He is, he's got a fabulous sense of timing. He's got a, a, he's a wonderful speaker. He, um, he projects a real collegiality. And when I was doing interviews, I was surprised at how much tensions there were behind the scenes. And they weren't really um, just ideological, that there were some people on his side, so to speak, who weren't quite sure if he was an honest broker on things. There was a really, there, been, there was a lot of fallout from his switched votes in the Affordable Care Act case in 2012. Uh, you know, with Rehnquist, love him or hate him, what, what you saw was what you got. Mm -hmm. And with John Roberts, he was trying to figure out, you know, exactly what his hand was. Uh, if I was told it once, I was told it a million times. He keeps his cards close to the vest. And so there were, there were tensions. But one thing I have to say is, if you're an outsider and you write about tensions at the court, they close ranks pretty quickly. We love each other. You know, like, so you, and that's, that's okay. I get that. You know, they're appointed for life. And uh, I'm, I'm still here, but um, <laughs> I don't have that kind of appointment. So, you know, so you're aware of, I, I became aware of that. And I also became aware of, you know, just as I'm finishing up this book, as you know, books take a long lead time, Justice Kennedy is leaving. Now, Justice Kennedy was in some ways, you know, he's the ideological center. He was the glue for all of them. He, he was the decider. And now John Roberts, who has a much different sensibility than Anthony Kennedy, he's at the ideological middle. So his, he's now not just someone who has to figure out how to, you know, how he wants this court to be viewed publicly. He now has even more authority in his vote. So it things, things are changing all the time there. And then you have the pressure from the Trump administration. He's, um, he's very close to someone who used to teach here, Elena Kagan. Um, he's also, I think, closer to, to Brett Kavanaugh than he is to Neil Gorsuch, just because he, um, in the Solicitor General's office back in the H.W. Bush administration, both of them were there. They both uh, were ju judges on the D.C. circuit. They, come, they run in, even though they're separated by about 10 years, they run in similar crowds, have similar backgrounds. So uh, I think there's a natural compatibility between Justices, um, uh, Kav Justice Kavanaugh and the Chief, uh, not so much with, um, with Neil Gorsuch. So, you know, it's always, it's like with, the, you know, it, it has become cliche what Byron White used to say, with every new justice you have a new court, but it's true. Mm -hmm. Um, how do you think Roberts is likely to lead the court on issues like um, abortion, affirmative action, 
gay rights, where Kennedy was the swing vote, and he's now gone. I think that um, I, be, I think that he and the court have become much more unpredictable, in part because I, you know, the chief, if he were listening to this, and he won't be, <laughs> would, would be thinking, oh, she's so wrong. But I think there's there's a certain sequencing that happens that he's not just looking at a single case. He's always kind of stepping back and thinking, what else is happening? What are people seeing? Uh, he's very aware of how things might be received. So not only is he looking at the facts of the case, the law of the case, but the moment we're in, in terms of the law and politics. So, for example, the oral arguments in the DACA, the deferred um, uh, um, deportation for childhood arrivals uh, that was just argued. Going into it, I was very aware that he had been 100% with the Trump administration in Trump versus Hawaii on the travel ban. Super aware of that. I was also aware because I had found out that he had switched his vote in the census case. He at first was with the Trump administration, then changed his vote. I was suspecting, and I knew how he had voted in the DAPA case, the parental arrivals thing uh, in 2016. I knew that he had voted for that. So I knew he would be inclined to want to support the administration. But I was also aware that he's got abortion on the table there. He's got the Title VII gay rights cases there. He's got, he'll be presiding presumably over an impeachment trial. He's got a lot of other things going on. Could he possibly be looking for an off-ramp to not give Trump too many five to four wins? And again, you know, in some ways that might sound cynical. That might sound, you know, just, you know, kind of looking at them in a lens that they prefer, would prefer not to look at, have them viewed. But I know from experience in dealing with these justices that there are just lots of things at play, and especially for the chief, because he is aware. And, he ha and you know, I've found times when he did switch his vote, mm -hmm. in part because of what he viewed was, you know, perhaps a, a legal off-ramp, but also something that would perhaps perhaps protect the institution more and, and his legacy. I'm, I'm going to ask Joan one more question and then I'll open it up okay. to, the, uh, to the audience. But, um, so who's your next justice? So hard because <laughs> I've, I've, uh, I, I have to tell people that when I uh, pitched writing about John Roberts to the publisher who had done the um, uh, Justice Scalia book and the uh, Sonia Sotomayor book, Farrar, Strauss, and Drew, my editor there, wasn't interested in, in the chief. Um, you know, he didn't have a naturally interesting demographic background, you know, this guy from Indiana. And, uh, but I was, I was really interested. I thought, you know, again, as I said at the beginning, only 17 chief justices. He's so enigmatic. You know, what is he all about? And, you know, fortunately in the process of writing this book, I, um, you know, I, he became more relevant because of uh, Kennedy's departure. But it was, it's a heavier lift when you don't have the natural first woman, first Italian-American, first Latina. So I am right now in the process of kind of deciding, is there another individual? Is there a person? Because biography is so much fun, and it's, frankly, as a writer, you know, the narrative is built in. You've got a life that you can track. But I'm uh, looking a little more broadly this time at some relational things on the court, uh, some of the pressures that the justices are feeling because of uh, an unusual administration, and we don't know what's going to happen in 2020 if uh, President Trump will get another 
term or if, the new, if a new president would put pressure on the court in a different way. We just don't know. And I'm thinking that um, this, this court in this era bears watching, and I just have to figure out the right lens. So that's all by way of saying I don't know yet, and I have to choose carefully because once you choose something and you get a contract, you in some ways remove yourself from life and you never see any good movies and none of your friends like you and your family hates you. And, you know, so you, you have to choose very carefully. <laughs> um, questions? Oh, come on. Yes, Jerry. Thank you. This was fascinating. Thanks. During the W. Bush years, Congress passed a couple of jurisdiction stripping bills that the court essentially invalidated. Did you have any sense of how Roberts thought about those? And you put the 9-11 case. Right. Well, you know, it's interesting because the Reagan administration, where he was had a core job giving legal advice on that, on court stripping, the idea, just to remind everyone of what I'm sure you know, is that back in the Reagan era, uh, some of the legal teams suggested having the court not get involved in abortion, having the, because, you know, we're still, we were still very much in a strong Roe v. Wade era. Uh, having the court not get involved in church-state cases. And John Roberts had to write a memo uh, sort of facing off against Ted Olson, another name that comes up all the time, uh, about you know, the validity of court stripping. And, I, and what, I, what I believe he has always thought is that as a, a matter of constitutional law, it might be okay. You know, that, that's back in the day when he was wearing that hat. But as a matter of public policy, you're just asking for you're just sort of asking for trouble. You know that it's not it's not worth it. And you know courts evolve, courts change. And I think you know it's a very big question right now how John Roberts will regard the scope of you know essentially his jurisdictional mandate, especially relative to the executive branch. You know all of you you know were aware of uh, Attorney General Barr's speech. Uh, you know, in his idea of executive authority, which was something that, you know, John Roberts very much believes in, but will he believe in it as strongly at this moment with President Trump in the White House and trying to protect the integrity of the court? Well, I'll call on you. Somebody back there at the microphone. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, when John Roberts is called upon to preside over an impeachment trial... How do you think he'll approach that duty? And especially if there are many senators like Lindsey Graham who are urging simply voting it down without a trial at all, how do you think he'll deal with that problem? Okay, that's a very relevant question because the only duty of the Chief Justice that's actually specified in the Constitution is as the person who presides at a Senate trial for impeachment of the President. And he's... I know that um, his people are studying up on it. He's got his former mentor, William Rehnquist, presided in 1999 over the Bill Clinton uh, trial. And I went and found uh, William Rehnquist's correspondence during that era uh, that's at the Hoover. And I'm sure that uh, people who were part of Rehnquist's team, who happen to still be on the scene now with the current chief, are helping inform him on that role. And it is largely ministerial. You know, he, he will, um, he works with the, par- from, you know, I've gone back and looked at a lot of the transcripts and tried to figure out what kind of role would this current chief want. And this current chief does not want to decide 
whether, uh, whether the, uh, the president gets convicted or not. I could guarantee you that. So he doesn't want to have to cast any deciding vote. But what he does is he makes the trains run. And the, the Sen- you know, if, if the senators themselves will agree on their own rules, and then he will be the enforcer of sorts with the parliamentarian at his hand. You know, Rehnquist was always turning to the parliamentarian saying, you know, this, that, that kind of thing. So I think, and, and you might not remember, but there was a motion <coughs> made by Robert Byrd to dismiss the Clinton um, impeachment charges uh, from the House. And for that, you only need a majority vote, and you, he didn't get it. You know, there was enough, you know, there, uh, Democrats, of course, were in the minority at the time when Bill Clinton um, was uh, being tried in the Senate. And uh, Senator Byrd, it was kind of an odd motion of his to dismiss these because he couldn't stand what Clinton had done, but he was just so, you know, on the, you know, the whole Monica Lewinsky thing, but he just wanted it to all go away, and he felt like the whole thing was devolving into this terrible partisan show, and that motion failed, but then, of course, uh, you need two-thirds to convict, and there was no way they got two-thirds, and in fact, that vote, that vote showed that there were enough, um, there was never going to be two-thirds for those charges, and, you know, that's what... You know, conventional wisdom right now is probably right, that there's no way Mitch McConnell, uh, the, where we're at, uh, and the information that uh, the country now has, and, you know, the impeachment inquiry hearings are going on as I speak, but, you know, it doesn't look like the Senate will ever be able to come up with two-thirds to convict if the House ends up impeaching. But I think the chief will be careful to keep his role as neutral as possible and as almost pro forma as possible. It's a, it's a headache job, actually, for him. You know, the old chief kind of liked it. I don't know if you remember, he was up there with the stripes he had mm-hmm. put on his robe, you know, from a Gil- Gilbert and Sullivan thing, and he had just written a book called Grand Inquests about impeachments that had come out in 1992. So he was, you know, he was all into it, but he, he considered it a bit of a hassle because, you know, you're over on the other side of uh, East Capitol hearing cases in the morning, running over in the afternoons to preside over this trial, and for anybody who's watched the Senate, as you know, you know, they're constantly, like, delays and all that. And the old chief was always on the clock. So um, we'll have to see how John Roberts uses his time. But we'll all see. That's the great thing about these impeachment hearings uh, is that, and the impeachment trial. They will be on TV, whereas the Supreme Court is not on TV. Right. Yes. You know, that's a great question. And, you know, I, I, we've talked about this. Why don't I just do the dead people? You know, it's just so much, <laughs> it's so much easier. They're not going to come complain, that's for sure. You know, like, you're not going to have the same issues that I have all the time after these things come out, and, then, you know, I have to kind of rebuild these relationships. Um, but, you, you know, you're not going to have, and you know what material's there. You know kind of, it's a really finite um, project. But I... Um, I think it comes from the fact that I am still a journalist. And even though I'm not covering the Supreme Court as our main daily journalist, and I haven't done that since I left the the post in USA Today, I've always been now more into projects or analyses. The chase of what's happening now and the relevance of what's happening now, and inevitably, as I'm doing reporting for any of these books, I get great stuff for my day job. That's nice. 
And I also feel like, why not? You know, the chief, one of the many things the chief said to me, you know, to try to discourage me was, you know, it's too early. Don't want to do it. You know, wait until I'm dead. And I would say, when you're dead, I'm dead. You know, like, so forget it. Forget it. Well, this, well, that's not what, how this is going to happen. But you're, so, you know, he, uh, many of my conversations with him were off the record. Some materials he put on, on background that I could use. But I, so I'm only telling you what, you know, mainly what I was say, telling to him is that, you know, look at how important he is. And he's only gotten more important. And so that's, that does mean it makes it more exciting for me, but it also makes it a limited. Now, the San, I, I really felt like my O'Connor book held up for many years, and the one that came out now is, you know, essentially 14 years later, and has, you know, now can fully assess with many more documentation uh, pieces that are available, kind of the, the entire O'Connor what O'Connor represented to the country in a way that when I did it right as she was leaving was, was different. And I don't think, other people have done Scalia books, but, for, but you know, Scalia in 2009, even though he you know, hung in there until obviously 2016, most of his world, most of what I, I would have wanted to say, I had in hand, mm -hmm. because his, his young life was so intriguing. And with the chief, Many people have said to me exactly what you said. You know, like, there'll be so much more and things will change. And I was so aware of, you know, just when I was facing deadlines, you know, is Anthony Kennedy going to stay? Is he going to go? And then, you know, I um, remember in November of 2018 was when John Roberts had that line about there are no Obama judges, Trump judges, whatever. You know, we just have these neutral people. And I was begging that into the final galleys with the editor. And uh, my editor said, this is not a newspaper. This is a book. <laughs> this is a book. You have to cut it off. But I was, and, and for that one, like, I hung up that phone and I called the production manager. Hey, how about trying to get, you know, like, I was constantly, like, treating it like, a, you know, something that you wanted the most, the freshest stuff in there. And, and I was glad that I was able to, you know, get those in. But it, I think it's part the nature of the kind of work I do. And, you know, probably, you know, the the uh, law professors here who have much more of a historian's eye would want to wait. And maybe I'll eventually do that down the road. But for now, it's, it's kind of fun as it's, as it's working. And I also feel like it's, it's meaningful. It's meaningful. Yes. That's right. You know, a, a, question, a question I get often is, you know, what will we do on Roe v. Wade? Now, at this point, he has never voted against an abortion regulation in any case during his time. So that's, you know, that's a touchstone for me. But then look what happened in February of this year, 2020, when the Louisiana abortion law was about to go into effect. And it's very similar to one uh, from Texas that had been struck down with John Roberts in dissent, but yet the Supreme Court had struck it down in, in 2016. John Roberts cast the fifth vote with the four liberals to block that law from taking effect. Now, if Anthony Kennedy had still been on the court, if, if, there, if, you know, if something else was happening, I just wonder if he would have cast that vote. You know, I, in fact, I don't think he would have. I don't think he would have needed to. He, and he, he probably would have not wanted to, but we will soon see what he does because um, the, 
the Louisiana abortion regulation is now going to be heard on the merits this court term. It's the June medical case. Right. So for all these things, what I'm seeing are new, new data points. I think that John Roberts still very much uh, would quarrel with Roe v. Wade and with the 1992 Casey decision that reinforced that. But does he want to be presiding over a court that reverses this landmark that's now nearly you know, half a century old? Will he do that, especially when everyone's looking at this court as being more political? And he's out there saying, defiantly, we are not political. So I, I think that's all in the mix. I think uh, the one area that I, uh, as Jeff knows, that I, I said in the book where I don't think he will have qualms is I think on race, he still very much thinks that affirmative action and any racial disease <coughs> are bad. And he you know, had completely owned his Shelby County versus Holder decision, uh, his decision in parents involved uh, that Justice Kennedy did not join, where he sort of reinterpreted Brown v. Board of Education, still really stands out as something that has a, you know, a decision that very much is against any kind of racial remedy. And a clash he had with Sonia Sotomayor was over, you know, do those kinds of programs do more harm than good? And he is adamant, has always been adamant that they do more harm than good. And the Harvard affirmative action case is marching its way up there. So I think on something like that, he will be more predictable just because of where he's been. But on um, issues of um, reproductive rights, there might be more play in the joints. And, and I think on issues involving President Trump and perhaps his, the tax cases that are up there now, would he, would he reject what um, Judge Bob Katzman wrote on, in the Second Circuit, hanging, his, the, uh, hanging the Trump idea that he, doesn't, that he can't even be investigated at all while he's president, not just indicted, but investigated at all? And would, would uh, John Roberts reject the notion that U.S. v. Nixon doesn't allow that? You know, so um, I think there are just so many different issues on executive power that he might um, step back from in a certain way that he wouldn't if times were different. And I, I, just to let you know what I was talking about, probably most of you know, there are two Trump tax cases that have now hit the Supreme Court. One comes from the Second Circuit, and it was an opinion by Judge Katzman for a three-judge panel rejecting Trump's, um, the Trump arguments that a sitting president cannot, is immune from any kind of criminal proceeding while he's in office. And then the other one involves the powers of the House to um, have oversight and um, over, you know, again, trying to obtain financial documents from a president. Last question. What was Chief Justice Roberts' reaction to your book? That's off the record. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, he has said things to other reporters that, report that they all scurried back and told me about um, in various ways. Uh, I would just say that from what I know from others, not from my own personal experience, was that uh, uh, he still would prefer that it was not written. And, until we're both dead. One of us before the other, maybe. <laughs> I should say I highly recommend it. It's a really fascinating, well-written, and engaging book. And you learn a lot about the nature of the Supreme Court as an institution, about the nature of the executive branch, um, how these decisions get made. So I, I highly recommend the book. It's a terrific read. Um, 
Well, and one thing I was going to say, people in his family, like I'm hearing from, I hear from like, it, it, the poor guy, people keep going up to him asking him to sign it, which I'm sure is not fun <laughs> at all. But, um, but I also, um, or they, you know, they say I'm going to ask him to sign it kind of thing. But um, I have heard from relatives of, relatives of his who um, want copies and all that. So, you know, it's, uh, uh, when, you're, when you're the subject of, of, of anything, as we all know, whether it be the, the wrath of Scalia or, right. uh, or a, a biography, you, you, uh, you want things to go exactly your way. Right. And it's not, by the way, I mean, when I read it, I didn't, I didn't perceive it as sort of harshly critical of Roberts. I mean, there are pieces where mm-hmm. you, I think, quite sensibly criticize him the way you would criticize anybody for various activities. But uh, apparently it's been taken uh, the wrong way. Um, <laughs> thank you all very much. Thank Joan Biskupic. Thank you. Audio File is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. Thank you very much, Dean Miles. Thank you all for being here. Um, you know, I'll never forget the when I first met Dean Miles. He was merely Professor Miles back in those days. He was a skeptic of behavioral law and economics, as most, as many really excellent economists were at that time, more than a decade ago. Um, you know, behavioral law and economics seemed sort of strange. There were all these odd findings that seemed to contradict basic uh, common sense, like the anchoring finding, one of the sort of staples of behavioral law and economics. If you tell somebody a number, they tend to anchor to that number even in circumstances under which it has no relevance. So if you tell people the temperature outside and then ask them to tell you how much they'd be willing to pay for something, the amount that they'd be willing to pay for it is much closer to the temperature than it would be if you hadn't mentioned the temperature in the first place. Um, Professor Miles and I discussed this back then. He came to my office. In those days, our teaching evaluations were on a scale of 1 to 7 rather than 1 to 5. Came to my office and told me that on the last day of his classes, he was going to try out having seven uh, bullet points on his outline for that day, (laughs) discussing seven topics, calling on seven students, and having seven key takeaways that everyone should walk away from the class with. And I said to him, you know, what are you doing with all this? I thought you didn't believe in this stuff. And he said, you know, just in case, it never hurts to try. I don't know if that was the year that Professor Miles won the teaching award, but (laughs) regardless, he's been uh, a great supporter of behavioral law and economics ever since. Okay, I want to start this lecture with three examples. First, I want you to imagine that you're injured in a car accident and you sue the other driver. After the case has gone on for a little while, the other side makes a settlement offer. How much are you willing to settle the case for? If you're a rational choice economist, the answer is that you're willing to settle if the settlement amount is greater than the amount you would receive in expectation if you litigated. But most people don't actually behave that way. Most people take into account other things, such as whether the settlement account seems fair. 
And I would like to pause and note, we're one minute into a lawn economics lecture, and I've already used the word fair, so buckle up, everybody. <laughs> what seems fair depends, in turn, on how much you think you're owed. How much you think you're owed depends on how much you've been injured in the accident, what you think you're owed to compensate you for your injuries. That, in turn, depends on how severe those injuries are and how much they've impacted your life. So the question is, how do you judge how much your injuries have impacted your life? Second example. Suppose you're a state legislator and you've been tasked with the job of reforming the state's penal code. Your job is to decide what the appropriate punishments should be for various crimes. Let's suppose that you decide that the appropriate punishment for robbery is 10 years and that you believe that murder is twice as bad as robbery. How long should the sentence for murder be? Well, 20 is twice as much as 10, so maybe the sentence should be 20 years. But of course, not all days in prison are created equal. You'd rather spend a day locked in the penthouse at the Ritz than in federal penitentiary. If somebody told you that you were being sentenced to a year of living on a Caribbean resort, you might not really think of that as punishment in the same way. This tells us that punishment has to mean something more than just the fact that your liberty is being restricted behind bars. It has, to, it has to have something to do with your experience. The individual's experience, what it's like to be in prison, has to matter to some degree as well. So how do we go about figuring what it's like to be in prison? How do we know whether 20 years is actually twice as much or twice as bad as 10 years. Last example. Suppose you work for the EPA and you're trying to decide whether the, uh, your agency should issue a regulation that bans the use of asbestos in certain types of building materials. The regulation will save lives because asbestos can cause lung cancer if it's inhaled, but it doesn't come for free. It's going to raise prices for the companies that build those buildings and it's going to force them to switch to more expensive materials and those companies will then pass the higher prices along to consumers and residents. So how do you decide whether that trade-off is worth it? How, many, how do you decide how many dollars it's worth spending in order to save a life? And don't tell me that you can't put a dollar value on life or that we shouldn't be making these types of trade-offs because they're inhuman because we make those types of trade-offs every single day. Okay. These three examples do not pose unanswerable questions. Lawyers and economists came up with answers to them decades ago because they had to. These are fundamental questions to the legal system. What I want to suggest is that the answers that we have now are not correct, or at least they're not nearly as accurate as they could be, given the methods that we have at our disposal today. So what are those methods? All of the questions posed by these examples involve how individuals experience their own lives and whether those experiences are positive or negative. How much has an individual been injured in an auto accident? How much punishment is five years or 10 years or 20 years in prison? These are questions that revolve around the issue of how the individual's life is going, how he or she is experiencing it. Psychologists have only recently begun to use a new methodology to figure out how a person's life is going. And when I tell you what it is, you're going to be amazed it took them this long. The methodology is pretty simple. Just ask the person. Just ask the person, all things considered, how is your life going for you? The answer that the person gives is a measure of that person's subjective well-being, how well that person's life is going according to that person himself or herself. A whole new branch of social psychology has sprung up around this question. This branch is called hedonic psychology. And because subjective well-being isn't very catchy, the term that's often used is happiness. So hedonic psychology is the study of what makes people happy or unhappy. Now, you might be a little skeptical that we can really learn anything useful from asking people how their lives are going. Are those answers really going to mean anything? So let me see if I can address that skepticism up front right now. First of all, 
what individuals say about their own happiness correlates very strongly with external measures that we might use to judge whether someone is happy or not. For instance, it correlates very strongly with how often a person genuinely smiles. Uh, and I mean a true genuine smile. Not sort of where you're turning up the corners of your mouth to make it look as though you're smiling, but when your face is actually, your whole face is actually smiling. These genuine smiles are called Duchenne smiles after the French physician who studied them. And do, the number of Duchenne smiles actually correlates very strongly with how happy a person is. So I'll show you an example of a Duchenne smile. I was talking to one of our Bigelow fellows the other day who advised me that I should pick an example that is as culturally relevant as possible, something that all the students would appreciate. I am a law professor, so there are certain limits on that, so here's my attempt. Okay, so that's Joe Biden on the left side <laughs> modeling a Duchenne smile. Uh, and on the right, that's poor John Boehner uh, with a non-Duchenne smile plastered on his face. Mostly this picture just makes me feel sorry for John Boehner, who I, I think had to go through a lot of his life with that sort of look on his face. Uh, the, and the poor guy, and no one should. Okay. Happiness measures also correlate very strongly with how happy the individual's friends and family say they are. They're highly replicable and reliable. You ask the same person the same question about the same thing in two different times, they're going to give you the same answer. The data repeat themselves, unlike a lot of psychology. So there are lots of reasons to trust that the measures that these people are giving us actually mean something and actually relate to how they're doing internally. All right, so now I want to talk for a second about how we actually might go about collecting data on subjective well-being. There are two main methods. So method number one, is to use a very broad-based national survey. There are two main versions of this. The GSS, the General Social Survey, which is administered in the United States, and the British Household Panel Survey, administered in Great Britain. Those two surveys, which are sent to thousands of people every year, pose enormous battery of questions, hundreds of questions. And among them, they include this questionnaire. All things considered, how satisfied are you with how your life is going on a scale of 0 to 10? And because we're learning so much about these people's lives, we're collecting such rich data about them, in addition to this data about their well-being, this survey allows us to really try to discern what types of life effects will actually impact how a person says they're doing, what will impact their own perception of their life. OK, so that's one option. Um, here is another option. Another option is, was uh, created by a collaborator of mine, Matthew Killingsworth, back when he was a graduate student in psychology. He has come up with an app, a smartphone app, called Track Your Happiness. Here's a shot of the Track Your Happiness app. And the way this works, you load it onto your smartphone, and every so often it will ping you, and it will ask you these questions here. How do you feel right now? How happy are you? And what are you doing right now? And so. Unlike the general social survey, we're not collecting huge amounts of broad-based data about everything going on in a person's life, but this does allow the collection of very particularized, discretized data about exactly what types of life experiences might cause someone's level of happiness in that particular moment to go up or down. The quid pro quo of this app is that if you download it, it will, in exchange for the data that you're providing to Killingsworth, um, it will print out reports for you, know, display. It will display reports for you about all the various things you do in your life and whether they make you happy or unhappy. So in theory, you can try to focus your attention on the things that make you happy and avoid the things that make you unhappy. I did this, and what it spit out is that the thing that makes me happiest is giving lectures about happiness. So here, <laughs> here I am today. There are some options in the middle, but these are sort of the main ways of thinking about these types of questions. Okay, so what have we learned from all of this psychological 
um, examination of happiness. Well, we've learned a lot about what makes people happy or unhappy. Much of it is not especially shocking. Some things that make people happy, having dinner with friends, sitting at home and watching television. Money makes people happy, but much less than you might think. The relationship between money and happiness is pretty weak and gradual. Above a threshold, once, you've, once you're making more than forty dollars or $50,000 a year, it takes a lot of money to have a really appreciable effect on your happiness above that. So I think a lot of people think of the happiness literature as sort of a guide to self-help. We're going to learn things about what makes us happier, and now we can go and live happier lives. And there are lots of popular books about it from that perspective. That's not my project, although not that I think that that sort of way of looking at it is not useful. Things that make people unhappy. Again, maybe not surprising. Driving in traffic makes people unhappy. <laughs> working makes people unhappy. Also, not working makes people unhappy. <laughs> Unemployment is very bad for happiness, even once you control for income, because there's something that's sort of debilitating or depressing about the fact of being unemployed and not having a job if you want one. More importantly, this research has revealed two sort of very general important facts about individuals and how they respond to the world around them. The first is adaptation. We are very adaptable. We are very quick to adapt to things that might make us happier or less happy, which is to say something comes along that makes us a lot happier, like we get a raise. Initially, a nice bump to our happiness. Pretty quickly, that advantage dissipates, and we're back nearly where we were. Or something comes along that makes us less happy, an injury, an illness, etc. Initially, that causes some harm to somebody's happiness, but eventually they get back to where they were. Um, we adapt, we're capable of adapting at least to some extent to nearly everything out there with a few pretty important exceptions, actually. Unemployment is one of them. It's pretty hard to adapt to being unemployed. Certain types of illness and disease, like chronic pain or ringing in the ears, are also very hard to adapt to. And the theory there, we don't know for sure, but the theory there is that the adaptation process comes about because we're able to put something in the back of our minds and sort of forget about it. But if you're experiencing chronic pain, it's pretty hard to put that in the back of your mind. The other key finding is that people tend to make a lot of effective forecasting errors, which is to say they're bad at predicting or forecasting how they're going to feel about something, how that thing will affect their affect going forward. We're just not good at judging whether something is going to really make us happy or not. We can take a guess, but we're going to be wrong a lot of the time. So these two sort of general findings are going to be important for all of the cases I discussed in a second. All right. So my project is to take what we've learned about subjective well-being and apply it to law and policy. What does that tell us about how our laws should operate or do operate? What does this literature tell us about what the things that we should spend money on? So I want to discuss the three examples uh, that I just started with uh, in, in terms of three sorts of cases of how we should think about these three different areas of law. A lot of this work is done with these two collaborators, John Bronstein and Chris Bacafusco. Um, their pictures are going to be up for a few minutes here, so I hope that's OK with everybody. All right, so my first example is uh, from civil law, tort lawsuits. So go back to my auto accident example. An individual is injured in an auto accident. person sues for damages. At some point, the other side, which could be the individual driver but is often the insurance company, will make a settlement offer. As I said at the beginning, the rational choice economist would just say, maximize the value of the recovery. But there's a lot of evidence that people don't actually behave that way. They want a settlement that seems fair, and fairness depends on how much the person believes that they've been injured. Here's the key. How much people feel that they've been injured changes over time. As I said, people adapt to injury. They start out 
feeling as if things have gone very badly, but that doesn't always last. So here's sort of a schematic of this. So this is about a person. Imagine this is a graph of a person's well-being. On the y-axis, we have their subjective well-being, how happy they are. On the x-axis, time. They're moving from left to right across this graph. So here's this person. They're at some level of subjective well-being. They're proceeding along, and then all of a sudden, an accident occurs, and their subjective well-being drops substantially. Well, for a while, they're going to be pretty unhappy. But then after some time, they're going to start to adapt to their injury. People tend to adapt to even very serious injuries. Um, not completely, but partially. So this adaptation will take place over a period of time. The adaptation isn't going to be complete. Um, and eventually, the person will sort of resume life. Adaptation will end at some lower level of well-being than they began with before the accident, assuming they have an injury that persists but nonetheless better than where they were immediately after the accident. People tend to adapt 30 or 40% of the way to even major injuries, like the loss of the use of a limb, let's say. Um, and when I say adapt, I mean recapture 30 to 40% of their lost subjective well-being. They adapt something like 50 to 60% to more minor injuries than that, even if the, again, even if the injury itself persists and doesn't go away. Okay, so somewhere along there, there is going to be a settlement offer. And the key idea is that the individual who's been injured is going to be willing to settle for less after the adaptation has already occurred compared with how much they were willing to settle for before the adaptation occurs. So if the settlement offer occurs out here after adaptation has already taken place, it's more likely to be accepted, precisely because the person doesn't think they've been hurt as much, and so they're willing to take less money. There are lots of legal doctrines that can affect this. Doctrines about discovery or motions practice, which slow down the pace of trial, they push settlement negotiations further away from the point of the accident. In addition, strategic parties can take advantage of this. Let's say you have an insurance company that's a repeat player. If they understand this phenomenon, they can hold off on making settlement offers to plaintiffs until later in the game, waiting for that plaintiff to adapt. On the other hand, if you have an experienced plaintiff's attorney, the plaintiff's attorney can try to counter that as well. So there are a whole series of testable predictions that flow from this analysis. One, of course, settlement demands decrease over time. Two, rules of procedure that delay trial will increase the rate of settlement, make cases more likely to settle. Um, and three, and maybe most importantly, these effects will occur differentially for different types of injuries. As I said, there are some injuries that are adaptable even very major injuries, but there are other conditions like chronic pain that are not. So if someone's injured in an accident and they are, maybe their back is hurt and they suffer chronic pain as a result, we would not predict that that person would adapt and thus their settlement demands would not go down and thus the likelihood that they'll reach settlement with the defendant is lower than it would be if that person had been injured in another type of accident. There are actually data on this and just to give you a sense of where this research is going, we're right now working on trying to test these hypotheses using that data. Okay, next example is criminal law. So I want to return to my second hypothetical, how do we design criminal punishments? Suppose we want to make the punishment for murder twice as bad as punishment for robbery. How do we go about doing that? We know that how the criminal experiences punishment matters a lot. That's why we don't put people in the writs in order to punish them. So maybe the right answer is that it, what it means to punish the murderer twice as much as the robber is that the murderer should experience twice as much punishment in terms of lost subjective well-being as the robber. Twice as much disutility. This is a really old idea. It goes back to Bentham. How do we measure disutility? 
Well, I'll tell you, the way to do it is not just saying that 20 years is worse than 10 years. It turns out that we actually know quite a lot about how people experience prison for the same reason we know quite a lot about how they experience everything else, which is that people have done surveys of prisoners and asked them these same questions. So how do people experience prison? Well, the first important finding is that people tend to adapt to prison. Prison starts out really bad, but it gets better over time, at least up to a point. That should make sense to everyone. That's sort of consistent with what we might think of as typical human experience. Whenever you are thrust into a new environment, the first couple of weeks or months in that new environment um, can be the hardest because you're not used to it, you're around new people, you haven't yet found your niche. And then after a while, after a couple of months or a couple of quarters, however you slice it, sometimes that experience can get better. You find your sort of social footing, you make social ties, etc., and your experience improves. True for prison and quasi-prison as well. <laughs> the second important finding is that people continue to feel the negative effects of having been incarcerated even after they are released from prison. Having been in prison creates all kinds of disadvantages for people that persist long after the period of incarceration is over. It's harder to get a job. Prison destroys relationships and makes it much harder to form relationships once you're out of prison. And often the person who's released is infected with a whole slew of diseases, HIV, hepatitis C, uh, often mental health disorders, depression, anxiety disorders, and so on and so forth, all of which create long-term health problems. Many of these disadvantages have large effects on subjective well-being, on happiness, and many of them are very hard to adapt to. Even more importantly, all of these negative disadvantages attach after just a couple years in prison, two or three years. You don't need five or 10 or 20 years to have all of these negative uh, disadvantages attaching to the prisoner. And what that means is that when someone is released from prison, whether they've served five years or 20, their subjective well-being doesn't go right back to where it was before they went into prison in the first place. It's still well below that. They're still suffering a type of punishment from having been in prison. So I'm going to show you the same sort of chart with regard to someone in prison. So here is our individual. They're going along. Then they are convicted and sentenced and sent to prison. Initially, it's very bad. There's a period in which it's very bad. Then adaptation begins. Things get better only up to a point, then they're sort of back. This is steady state within prison. And then the, pr the prison term ends at some point, and the person is released, and their subjective well-being goes back up again, but not all the way to the point it was before they went into prison. OK, so this has very significant legal ramifications. The first and most important of which is that 20 years in prison is not twice as bad as 10 years. It's not nearly twice as bad. 10 years is not twice as bad as five years, and so on and so forth. So let's imagine that this is a graph of someone who's been in prison for 20 years. I'm going to show you what it looks like for someone who's been in prison for only 10 years, who gets out halfway through that period. So here's our individual, the, the, the line in blue. Let's suppose the, blue, the person in blue is released at the 10-year mark halfway through, and then they're out of prison. How much more punishment, how much more disutility has our person who was sentenced to 10 years suffered? Just this little blue rectangle there. That's it. That's the extra disutility that they suffered above and beyond what the person who was sentenced to 20 years has suffered. What have they suffered in common? All of this, all of that gray shaded area, and a little more in the triangle that I couldn't quite reach. Um, <laughs> so what, they have in what these two people have in common dramatically outweighs what they do not have in common, despite the fact that one was sentenced to prison for twice as long as the other. So this means that our calibration of prison sentences is way off. 
if we think that sentencing someone to 20 years in prison is twice as bad as sentencing someone to 10 years, that's just wrong. And if that's what we've based our punishments around, we're way off. Prospective criminals may or may not realize this. Maybe the only people who realize it are people who have actually been to prison. But if they do, then our efforts to deter criminals by jacking up sentences are going to go off the rails. Because criminals will realize that long prison sentences just aren't that different than much shorter sentences. This can help explain recidivism to some degree. People get out of prison and their opportunities are not nearly as great as they were before they were ever in prison. Their life experience has, uh, has worsened to a significant degree. And so they have much less to lose by reoffending and going back into prison. It can help explain why criminal defendants sometimes elect to go to trial rather than taking what appear to be favorable plea deals. Economists usually talk about this in terms of hyperbolic discounting. So let's say you tell the, you tell the criminal defendant, you know, you're looking at 20 years if you go to trial and lose, and you'll probably lose, but we'll let you plead to five years. And the defendant says, no, I'm not going to plead to five years. The economist might say, well, that person is just not thinking about the future very much. They're just focused on tomorrow, next week, next month, or maybe the first year. They're discounting everything to the moment very aggressively. Maybe, or maybe that prisoner, that, that criminal defendant is completely rational and they just understand that there isn't a big difference between five years in prison and 20 years in prison for the rest of their life going forward. It's actually going to, those two things are going to have very similar impacts on their happiness, so they might as well take the gamble and try to get zero. It can also help explain why the probability of detection is so much more powerful as a way of deterring people than raising the sentences. So anyone who's taken my basic crim law class, you know, uh, it's much better, if we want to deter people, much better to increase the likelihood that we're actually going to catch them and convict them and punish them than it is to just increase the sentence length. These two things don't trade off perfectly. That might be because increasing the sentence length only has a very marginal impact on how people actually experience prison. Whereas increasing the chance that they're convicted at all, the change from never having to go to prison to having to go to prison even for a shorter period of time, that's very, very significant. The bottom line is that our criminal punishments just aren't having the effects that we think they will. So what can we do about this? Well, it's hard to solve the adaptation problem. We can make prison worse. We can make it harder to adapt to. We can move everyone around from prison to prison so they never get comfortable in their current environment. Uh, that seems excessively costly and excessively harsh to me. A more promising target is probably the effects of prison after release. The goal would be to make, prison, to make life after prison better and make it easier for released prisoners to get jobs, to form relationships, to maintain their health, and so forth. So we could think about investing in job training and education while in prison. We could think about imprisoning people closer to their family and friends. Right now, the law says that everyone has to be imprisoned within 500 miles of their family. 500 miles can be a prohibitively long distance for a lot of people. We could think about shortening that. We could think about trying to improve conditions within prison, less solitary confinement, greater safety for prisoners, so they don't all leave prison with mental health dis disorders, with physical illnesses, and so forth. There are obviously limits to what can be done, but there are probably also very substantial margins along which we could make progress. OK, my third and final example. Suppose you work for the government, and you're trying to decide whether the government should undertake a particular project or promulgate a particular regulation. The working example I'm going to start with is whether the EPA should ban asbestos, but it really could be anything. Should the government spend money to build a park? Should it invest in a new vaccine for disease? And so forth. How do you decide whether this project or this regulation is a good idea? 
The standard modern approach is to use cost-benefit analysis. Figure out the costs of the project in dollar terms. How much will it cost if the EPA forces everyone to stop using asbestos? Figure out the benefits of the project, again, in dollar terms. What is the value of all the lives we will save if fewer people get cancer because they're inhaling asbestos? And so forth. Cost-benefit analysis is a good thing. It is much better than no cost-benefit analysis. I've written a lot of papers, more than I care to count, defending cost-benefit analysis against a variety of alternative approaches. But it has real problems as well. The hardest part is to figure out what everything is worth in dollar terms. How much is a life worth? How much is building a public park worth? Most of these things are not traded in markets in the conventional sense. There is no real market price. So cost-benefit analysis uses two methods. The first method is what they call revealed preference studies. So in some cases, people are making implicit market trade-offs of some of these goods. So for instance, think about how you might go about trying to value uh, a human life. So it turns out that dangerous jobs usually pay higher wages than similar jobs that don't carry the same risk. Doing construction work on a skyscraper where you could fall to your death pays a little bit more than doing a similar type of job that doesn't have the same type of risk of life and limb. So what you could do is, if you're an economist, you could look at that wage differential, and then you could figure out how dangerous that construction job is. So maybe the wage differential is uh, you know, $5 a year, and maybe the risk of death from working on a skyscraper is one in one million. So that implies that the person has valued their life at $5 million, five divided by one in one million for that year. That's a standard mode of figuring out how much a life should be valued at. There are a lot of problems with this approach, but I'm going to name just one. How on earth is the employee supposed to know how dangerous the job is? It's not like they publish statistics that construction workers read about how many people have died uh, in those particular types of construction jobs and whether the risk is one in 100,000 or one in a million. If you're offered a construction job, you might know that there's some risk of death but how are you going to know what the risk of death is? One in 10,000, one in 100,000, one in a million. These are all pretty small numbers. They're two orders of magnitude off. So not surprisingly, the results of these revealed preference studies, when you look at all the various studies that have been done, they often differ from each other by up to two orders of magnitude. Some studies put the value of a life at about $300,000. Other studies put the value of a life at more like $40 million. There's enormous variation because a lot of people are guessing. I'll just say very quickly, there are some things where there's no implicit market at all. And so economists use what are called stated preference studies. Those are just surveys. You want to know how much uh, people value a public park? You ask them, how much would you pay to have this public park built? There are some pretty big obvious problems with that as well. For one thing, nobody has to pay any actual money. So they can just sort of name a number that indicates how much they like parks in general. I really like parks. I'd pay a million bucks for a park as long as you're not actually asking me to pay. Or <laughs> I hate parks, I would pay zero, or you'd have to pay me if you want to build a park in my neighborhood. <laughs> the other thing about it, which is a little more sort of conceptual, is that this involves substantial effective forecasting errors. You're asking me to guess how much I'm going to enjoy this park, which involves guessing, for instance, how much I'm actually going to use it, how much I will ever get outside, uh, how much I'm ever going to venture into that park as opposed to these other options. And people might be really good at estimating those things in advance if they've never actually tried it out before. So what I want to suggest is that there's a better approach to all of this, which is to use the data on subjective well-being. So for starters, we have data on individual subjective well-being, and we have data on how much money they have. And so we can figure out the relationship between income and subjective well-being, even if we control for all these other factors. And we can use that to more accurately calculate the value of a life. 
The question is, how much would a person lose if they had to pay a little bit more money? How much subjective well-being would they sacrifice from paying a little more money? Versus how much subjective well-being do they stand to lose if they die prematurely from inhaling asbestos and get cancer or something like that? And you can also use the same sort of data to figure out something like, how much do people really value a public park? The Killingsworth Track Your Happiness app, which I described earlier, is really aimed at exactly those sorts of problems. You can watch on the app as the person is outside of the park, how much they are enjoying life, and then when they walk into the park, we can figure out how often they walk into the park, and so on and so forth, and get an actual measure as to how much people are really going to use these types of resources and how much they value them. And we're working on research along those lines. All right, so let me illustrate how this would work with an example drawn from an actual EPA regulation. So what we're trying to do is calculate the value of a statistical life. That's just the fancy term for how much a life is worth in a regulation. So this regulation that I'm going to show you was promulgated in 1989 uh, based on their 1985 numbers. In 1985, EPA put the value of a life at 4.5 million. Today it's 7.4 million. And so what I want to do is using data from subjective well-being data from the general social survey, try to figure out um, what that subjective well-being data tells us. And so here's what it tells us about the relationship between money and income. I apologize for, actually, you know what, I take it back. I do not apologize for the math coming up. Uh, okay, what it says is that happiness is proportional to 0.11 times the natural log of income. Anyone who knows what a natural logarithm looks like, it sort of increases like this, relatively slowly up here. So increases in wealth have a positive effect on income, but a relatively small positive effect on income. So we're just going to try to use this data to answer exactly the same question that the EPA was using when it used revealed preference studies, which is, what's the trade-off such that giving up a small amount of money has the same effect on happiness as running some small risk of death? All right, so that requires calculating how much well-being people lose if they die prematurely. I'm going to do this in well-being units. This is our created unit to describe how much well-being somebody loses. One well-being unit is one point on this 10-point scale for one year. The average American rates his or her life satisfaction at 7.4 on a 10-point scale. Pretty good for us. Um, I'm going to assume that the average working age person was going to uh, live for 30 more years uh, if they didn't die prematurely of cancer. I'm going to add in another half uh, well-being unit loss from the illness, the cancer itself. I can justify all these numbers if you want later on. And so the total well-being loss from dying early is 7.4 times the 30 years plus that half, which is 222.5 well-being units. Okay, so now I want to figure out what those are worth in dollar terms. So here's the median household income. We're assuming one in 100,000 risk of death. And the question is, what's the amount of money? What's the amount of money that you'd be willing to give up such that, you'd be, it's so that, such that it's equal to bearing that sort of risk of death? What's the amount of money you'd be willing to pay to eliminate that one in 100,000 risk? Exactly the same question that the revealed preference studies are trying to get at, just with very different data that doesn't rely on workers knowing that the risk of death is one in 100,000. It only relies on what people say themselves about how money impacts their own lives. Okay, so we're going to set the loss of happiness due to loss of income equal to the loss of happiness due to the one in 100,000 risk of the loss of life. All right, so this is, these are the equations behind it. I'm going to go through these quickly and not really talk about them. The answer is the amount of money that people should be willing to sacrifice to bear that 1 in 100,000 uh, risk, or I should say the amount of money that they would be willing to pay to avoid that 1 in 100,000 dollar risk is $1,130. And remember, we were talking about a 1 in 100,000 risk. 
So that implies that the value of a statistical life is actually more like $113 million, not the four and a half or seven that the EPA was using. Okay, so how does this look, how does this look in terms of the regulation? So I'm just going to walk through the regulation using all of these different numbers. Here are the 1989 valuations. The EPA estimated the cost of getting rid of these. Uh, this is a regulation about asbestos pipe. Um, the EPA estimated the cost of getting rid of the asbestos pipe at $128 million. Thought there would be slightly fewer than 4.4 lives saved. Here's the value of each life. Here's the total value of the lives saved. And the overall net benefits of this regulation, negative $108 million. This regulation was struck down in a very famous case by the Fifth Circuit precisely for this reason. The Fifth Circuit looked at these numbers and said, this regulation was a mistake. It's not cost benefit justified. And based on what the Fifth Circuit knew at the time, that was the right decision. That was the appropriate action. Here's how it looks with 2015 valuations. The only thing that's different is the value of life, but it doesn't change things very much. And here's what you get if you use the subjective well-being data. So again, the same numbers. The only thing that's different is the value of each life. And of course, now what this reveals is that actually, if we think about how much those lives were worth to those people in terms of the money that they were actually willing to trade to preserve their own lives, the overall net benefits are more in the range of $367 million. So this asbestos regulation, which was struck down in the early 90s, maybe it actually should have been allowed. Maybe it was actually doing far more good than harm. Okay. Um, Last permutation of this. We could, use, we could use the well-being data to translate everything into dollars, like we do here. Or we could go the other direction and translate everything into well-being units and run exactly the same analysis just using well-being units. We call this a well-being analysis. So basically what that means is now we have to take the compliance cost, the $128 million, and translate that into well-being units. I'm going to race through this pretty quickly. It's the same sort of mathematics. And the answer is that that compliance cost is worth about negative 249 well-being units. So now we can do the same cost-benefit analysis, now a well-being analysis using well-being units. Here's the cost in well-being units. Here are the lives saved, the value in well-being units of each life being saved, the value of the life saved overall, and the overall net benefits of the regulation, which again, as you see, is very positive. So either way, what we're doing is we're using these subjective well-being data, which as I've said, I think are more reliable for a variety of different reasons, to try to get a better handle on whether this regulation is actually going to improve people's lives or hurt it. I'm going to say two things about where this research is going now, and then I will be done. So the next frontier of this research is trying to use other types of data to understand subjective well-being, and then using that data to analyze other types of research questions. And so a lot of this work is pioneered by my collaborator, Elizabeth Beasley. There is Elizabeth. Um, what she is doing, what she and her co-authors are doing, is they are using Google searches to figure out whether people are happy or unhappy. Turns out, the things that people search for if they're happy are very different than the things that people search for if they are unhappy. This comes as a surprise to exactly nobody. If they're happy, they're searching for clubs to join and athletic activities to be part of and places to go to dinner. And if they're unhappy, they're often searching for psychiatrists or depression medication or any number of other things like that. So she took national data on happiness and national Google search data, which Google provides free of charge in volume to anyone who wants it. And she built a model that mapped one onto the other. So here's their model. The blue line is how people have, uh, how, how 
how uh, happy people say their lives actually are. The red line is her model that tries to track that using Google search terms exactly. I, I, I could describe this chart in more detail, but I will not bother you with it right now. The point is the model is really pretty accurate at explaining how happy a group of people are based on what they're searching for on Google. The value of this is that we have so much information about Google search terms that you can get a really precise read on how happy people in a city are at a given moment, or a county, or a very small unit like that, um, in a way that we can't with the general social survey or even the Track Your Happiness app. So you can study things like, what does it mean for a small town if a factory closes? Or what does it mean for a city if the unemployment rate drops, or anything like that? Um, lots of interesting information about how various policy changes or legal changes affect small units. The project that we're working on with Elizabeth Beasley is about health insurance. The Affordable Care Act allowed states to elect to expand Medicare access. Um, some states did expand Medicare access, other states did not expand, and they did it at various times. So the rates of, at which people are covered by insurance starts to vary state by state quite dramatically as of 2014 when these Medicaid expansions took effect in some states but not in others. So that creates a sort of quasi-natural experiment. And it allows us to look at the effects of health insurance on subjective well-being on a national scale and in various particular localities. Um, there, there, was other, there are other important studies of this, including a very good study about Medicaid access in Oregon that found that people that increasing healthcare access does not have much of an effect on physical health, but it has a very substantial effect on emotional, mental well-being, on subjective happiness and well-being. And so what we're trying to do is see if we can uh, see the same effects and pick them up on a nationwide basis. We're still running the numbers on this, but the preliminary results suggest that having health insurance may actually have a very meaningful effect on a nationwide basis on subjective well-being. So, to conclude, the, the new literature on happiness can, in fact, be useful as a way of engaging in personal self-help, as a method of trying to find ways that will improve your own lives. But it can also be a lot more than that. It can be used as a tool to evaluate and design policy on a nationwide scale, and maybe even make a lot of people happier all at once. And that's what we're trying to do here. Thank you. So I believe we have time for questions. Yes? Um, we get really good at tracking individual well-being units. Um, with prison sentencing context, does it make sense for us to then sort of say, robbery should be punished with 400 WBUs, and then make punishments individualized in that sense? Um, and if we do, are we OK with putting unhappy people in prison longer Okay, good. All right, so there's a lot embedded in there. So, um, so for starters, you know, I think it would make sense to say, you know, we want to we want to punish people who've committed X crime by a certain amount, and people who've committed this other crime by a different sort of amount, and we can measure that in well-being units. There's a question about whether we want to do that sort of on a broad scale across the board. Let's have the average person who's committed robbery be punished that amount, or the average person who's committed murder be punished this other amount, or if you want to actually try to individualize it to the person. I don't have a particularly strong feeling about that. I think it will be hard to individualize it very precisely, but I'm not sure there's necessarily anything wrong with that for the following reason, which is 
it's not as though happy and unhappy people will be serving longer terms. The question is not, you know, what's your natural state of happiness? The question is, what is the effect that prison will have on you? So it might be that being in prison makes the unhappy person, you know, three points less happy, and it makes the happy person three points less happy as well. The happy person started off better off and they end up better off, but prison has the same effect on them, the same disutility on both people, in which case we'd say the punishment on those two people is the same. The two types of people who would actually be treated differently are the person who's really good at adapting to prison, the person who makes friends quickly and uh, learns to live in the prison environment very rapidly, versus the person for whom prison is really awful and is really a chore. And so if the question you'd ask me is, for the person for whom prison is really, truly terrible and who suffers more on a moment-by-moment -moment basis, do we think that that person maybe should have a shorter prison term? I think that that's plausibly yes. Plausibly the answer is yes, because we're getting all of the action we need. We are getting all of the punishment um, in a shorter span of time. There's no reason to keep that person locked up unnecessarily long. Adam. Uh, what extent should we think of your project as the behavior of law and economics, uh, behavior of law and economics of versus better measurement of utility. So my understanding, uh, the basic premise of the law economics for I think rationality yep. is a stable set of preferences over time. Behavioral law and economics is that people have predictably bounded rationality to make irrational decisions mm -hmm. in the future. Like your initial example about subtleties. So we predict that you can take uh, expected value from trial, but in practice people think what they think is fair or something like that. But a lot of what you've been doing seems to be just measuring utility patterns and not saying that people are predictably irrational. Now the uh, predicting the future hypothesis that you told us about is a way in which people are predictably irrational. But a lot about adaptation or measurement as well is just saying the current tools for measuring utility could be improved by surveys. It seems like a very different claim. I agree with that. I mean, I think you've sort of You've, you've uh, anticipated exactly what I was going to say, which is a lot of this is just uh, a better attempt to measure utility better, which you know, I don't have a lot invested in whether we define that as behavioral or not. Uh, it certainly is contrary to the major thrust of existing rational choice neoclassical economics, but you could just call it a better version of neoclassical economics if you wanted to. The important finding within this literature that I think is distinctively behavioral is the effective forecasting error. The fact that people are very bad at judging what will make them happy in the future and thus that their decisions, the decisions they make, are not necessarily rational and informed in the way that economists want us to think of them in the sense of the person is picking what they believe to be the best mechanism for making their life better or achieving whatever goal they have, but in fact they are mischoosing and they are mischoosing in predictable sorts of ways um, across you know, essentially a ubiquitous range of, uh, of situations and contexts. So that, to my mind, is the big behavioral aspect of this. But that particular aspect pervades, uh, you know, it, I think it pervades essentially every area of law that this is applicable to. And so that's why, that's why I'm comfortable calling this behavioral sort of writ large. So th this is a question about the implications of adaptation. Right? So, so adaptation creates, um, means that the, the victim essentially has multiple selves, right, before the accident. Mm -hmm. um, and after the after adaptation and so forth, so it doesn't that doesn't really matter for for for, for the exercise that you engaged in of predicting what settlement offer bill mm -hmm. set. But if you if normatively you're interested in how much should society deter the injurer, then what's the how do we measure the harm? Is it which which of the cells, or the, there's multiple cells to be used to measure the, the harm? 
Well, I think that the harm is the sum of the multiple selves. I mean, I don't, I'm not sure exactly what's gained by, you know, the person goes through different periods in their life. I'm not sure if a substantial, if a substantial amount is gained by, by describing that as multiple selves or not. So the harm is, I'll just go back to the chart. Pardon the substantial clicking this will require. Uh, okay. All right, so I'll just, just using this slide, I mean, the harm that the person is suffering is everything that's shaded gray there, right? So you can call that the multiple selves of the person as they are put in prison, adapt, and then, and then leave. But whatever, whatever the case, we had an individual who was operating at one level of well-being, and then we engaged in a legal intervention that was applied to that individual, and their well-being dropped, and so they suffered some loss. And so I'd say if you were trying to gauge how much has that person been punished, or in the auto accident context, how much has the person been injured, the person has been injured, the entire shaded area, everything under the curve, so to speak. And it's the summation of that that's our proper measure of the injury that's occurred to them. Anna? So I have a question about the choice of subjective well-being as sort of a, a measure. Uh, I think one of the things we know, especially in the context of what we know about adaptation, is that like, people uh, can look subjectively the same. We have uh, subjective state of happiness mm -hmm. when they are experiencing very objectively different life conditions. Sure. Um, one of the things you might imagine is that people, for example, who grew up living in poverty uh, adapt to having potentially similar levels of subjective happiness, even as on objective scales like lifespan, um, health outcomes, educational opportunities, they're very different. Yeah. And so, how do you, th I sort of have a moral question, how do you think about balancing that sort of subjective outcome versus the risk of maybe even like calcifying, you know, different classes of society with very different objectives, right? Yeah, I think this is a really important question. Um, and it really sort of puts to the test how much I or anyone else wants to be invested in this type of a measure of how well someone's life is going. If we saw someone living in extreme poverty who was nonetheless very happy, would we really be willing to say, well, that person's life is going pretty well. Maybe we shouldn't disturb them. We should just leave them as they are. And what would be all the terrible negative consequences that would flow from that sort of attitude? You know, um, I guess I want to say that my intuitive answer is probably that's not the right way to think about that problem, that we ought to intervene in that person's life. But I guess the thing I really want to say is that the question is hard because it requires the person answering it to assume something that is actually contradicted by every shred of evidence that we have. In fact, people who live in extreme poverty, people who live under oppressive, terrible conditions are, generally speaking, much, much, much less happy than people who live in relative wealth and happiness. Like I said, you know, when I talked about income, Income doesn't make a large difference when you're above forty or fifty thousand dollars a year, but when you're living close to the poverty line, income makes an enormous difference on your happiness. It has incredibly powerful effects because you're talking about being able to afford or not afford basic types of necessities, um, and that's true for people who live in um, oppressive circumstances in other countries, for people in marginalized social groups who are living in oppression, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, I think that the, the moral dilemma that you're describing. Uh, it, it's, it just doesn't, it, it would be, it's alleviated to a large degree by the fact that the, what we know of how people experience their lives just doesn't sort of bear that out very much. To the, to the, great, to the largest extent that I can sort of describe, people really do, when you think that someone is suffering, they probably are suffering. And 
cases, anecdotes about the person who's living in, in poverty and oppression but is nonetheless very happy, those are just anecdotes. The vast majority of the data would say that person is actually living a bad life, they have very low subjective well-being, and we ought to do something immediately to intervene in their lives and help them and try to improve their lives. Yes, David. Um, have you looked at the change in subjective well-being to the victim and to society when you see somebody get no, I don't think I've I've seen I don't think I've seen any data on that whatsoever. That's an interesting question. Um, my suspicion would be that this is the sort of thing to which people adapt very quickly. That whatever satisfaction someone feels from having closure to the case or uh, from watching the perpetrator of a crime be punished is pretty fleeting and that person pretty quickly goes back to regular life. But I have not seen data on that and that would be interesting. I mean that would be sort of yet another element we'd want to add into our whole sort of criminal punishment calculus. Um, we'd also want to know whether the person feels differently if the sentence is five years versus ten years versus twenty years. It might be that past a certain point of sentence length the impact on the victim's well-being is identical as well. But those would be interesting questions to study. Yes. Um, so I've heard recently that uh, I think it's Britain uh, created a new position of uh, Minister of Happiness. Uh, and I think a number of countries, maybe including Britain, uh, now track uh, gross domestic happiness. Uh, so I'm curious to hear, you know, do we need a position like that in the US? Uh, and what are these indices tracking exactly? And, and uh, what do you think about their, uh, their, their merit? Yeah, sure. I mean, this is sort of, when it comes to public policy and happiness, this is what gets the headlines. You know, Bhutan calculates gross national happiness. Um, uh, went back when he was president of France, Nicolas Sarkozy made a big speech about how we should stop trying to judge France by its GDP growth, but actually judge it by its levels of happiness instead. I, I actually think that these are some of the least useful um, uh, applications of happiness. I don't know what it tells us uh, to measure a country's gross national happiness over time because it doesn't tell us anything about the inputs into that level of happiness. What's actually making people better off or worse off? Um, you know, it's like trying to figure out whether we ought to, um, you know, it's like, well, let's look at the U.S. GDP and we'll use U.S. GDP to tell us whether we ought to, um, you know, raise the minimum wage in New York from $11 to $12 or something. It's not useful in a policy sense. It's just a sort of tracking number. So. I would be in favor of having a minister of happiness, but only if that person were engaged in actual sort of subjective well-being based policy analysis of particular laws and regulations. Tracking gross national happiness, it's cute for headlines, but I don't think it's good for much else than that. Yes? <coughs> Uh, no, I, I would not say that that's the case. I think that that, I think that that states it a little bit too strongly. You know, that would be true if everyone adapted to everything perfectly, such that they recovered, you know, any change in their happiness, they recovered it. But that's not true for lots of different things. You know, people don't, they adapt somewhat to prison, but they don't adapt completely. They adapt somewhat if they're injured, but they don't adapt completely. You know, things that make people unhappy. So your example was somebody moves to a new city. So like, let's just take, somebody has a job in downtown Chicago. One of you is working at a law firm in downtown Chicago. 
Chicago, and you move out to Naperville to have you know bigger house and yard and better schools or something like that. The trouble is you now have to drive an hour in traffic every day. You know. The question of whether you adapt or not is irrelevant. You have to drive an hour every day in that terrible traffic. That's going to keep happening, and that's going to diminish your happiness very substantially. So there are lots of decisions that people can make that will have long-term effects on happiness. Um, and there are lots of things we can impose on people that will have long-term effects on happiness as well. I, I guess my point is just those effects are not necessarily always what we would predict, and they don't always necessarily persist to the same degree that we would predict they persist. Yes? Yeah, I, this is a good important question, and I think um, you know one thing that's important about it is it highlights the difference in two, the two main measures of happiness that I talked about. So when people are asked once a year in the general social survey, how is your life, go, how is your life going for you, all things considered, that I think is trying to get at this sort of all things considered deeper sense of contentment or whatever that you're describing. My fear of it is that it's also leading people to make judgments about their lives rather than actually reporting how happy they are. So imagine a person who gets a promotion in a given year, which give them, gives them a lot more responsibility, but also creates a lot of anxiety. I could easily imagine that person answering the general social survey and saying, you know, I am a lot happier because they feel like they ought to be, given that they got a promotion, even if, in fact, their life has been worse that year because of the anxiety that was applied to them. Um, the other, you know, the the Killingsworth track your happiness measure that we're using for some of these, these studies, that's much more of sort of the moment by moment. There is a risk that all you're doing is capturing what's going on in that moment um, and that it might be shallower. But then again, you know, I mean, this is a, this is a topic we could have a big uh, philosophical debate about. But I guess I would just say, you know, life is kind of just a series of moments. And if you add up a lot of series of moments, <laughs> That, you know, that, that maybe that's the formula for a pretty content life. So I think that there are, I, I, I think the point you're making is exactly right, but I think that there are some virtues to the sort of precision of moment by moment as opposed to the judgment of the long run. So the moment of the <laughs> lecture has come to an end, uh, although it made us all very happy. Uh, please join me in thanking Professor Mazur. Thank you. This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. don't know me, my name is Michael Schill, and I'm Dean of the University of Chicago Law School. And I'm thrilled to welcome you here for today's event, featuring a conversation between Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Professor Jeffrey Stone on Roe versus Wade at 40. Now, this event is co-sponsored by the Institute of Politics 
the Center on the Study of Gender and Sexuality and the University of Chicago Law School. Additional support for the Center on the Study of Gender and Sexuality's programming on Roe versus Wade was also provided by the Social Sciences Division. Now, we're always extremely honored when a Supreme Court justice visits us, and we're especially so when it is someone like Justice Ginsburg, who is a longtime friend of so many in our community and has so many ties to our university and to our city. Her son, James, who we are pleased to have with us this afternoon, is a Chicagoan who attended our law school before starting his highly acclaimed classical music record label. Her late husband, Marty, was a greatly influential legal academic who at one time spent time with us as a visiting professor. And one of her former clerks, Aziz Huck, is now a member of the law school faculty. And of course, she's a longtime friend and colleague of the other speaker for today, Jeff Stone. Now, Jeff, of course, is well known here on campus, but I'll provide a short introduction for him anyway. Jeff Stone is the Edward H. Levy Distinguished Service Professor at the University of Chicago Law School. After graduating from our law school in 1971, he was a law clerk to Justice William J. Brennan on the United States Supreme Court in 1972-73. Now that date will seem particularly relevant, or should seem particularly relevant today. That is the year that Roe versus Wade was decided. He joined our faculty in 1973. He has served both as the dean of this law school and as provost of our university. Most important for our purposes today, he is one of the foremost authorities in the world on American constitutional law. He's the author of more than a dozen books, including the preeminent casebook on constitutional law and the award-winning book, Perilous Times, Free Speech in Wartime from the Sedition Act of 1798 to the War on Terrorism. Now, Justice Ginsburg is one of the few people in the world who needs less of an introduction than Jeff does in this crowd. But I suspect that most of you know her best through her work that she has done since being appointed to the United States Supreme Court by President Clinton in 1993. While I have no intention of slighting those 20 years of brilliant service on our nation's highest court, I thought it more relevant to our topic today to speak of her life as a litigator and as what the ACLU calls a pioneer for gender equality. Now, after attending Harvard Law School and graduate, I'm sorry, Har yes, Harvard Law School and then graduating from Columbia Law School in 1959, Justice Ginsburg experienced firsthand some of the gender discrimination common at that time. She was one of only nine women in her Harvard class, and she and her classmates were asked by the dean why they were occupying seats that could have been occupied by men. Despite her tying for first in her class and having stellar recommendations from faculty, Justice Frankfurter turned her down for a clerkship because he didn't want a female clerk and no law firm would hire her. She instead began her career as a clerk on the Southern District of New York, 
then moved into academia, where she co-founded the influential journal The Women's Rights Law Reporter, the oldest legal periodical in the United States, focusing solely on the legal rights of women. While teaching at Rutgers, she discovered that her pay was lower than that of her male colleagues. So guess what she did? She joined a successful equal pay campaign with other female academics. Her personal experiences and her academic interest in the legal rights of women turned into a career as a litigator defending them. In 1972, she founded the Women's Civil Rights Project at the ACLU and also joined the Harvard Law, I'm sorry, the Columbia Law School faculty as their first tenured faculty member, then joined the ACLU also as general counsel. She already had experience litigating gender equality matters, having written the brief in Read, 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 which overturned an Idaho law granting men preference as estate administrators and extended the Constitution's equal protection guarantee to women for the first time. Justice Ginsburg then argued her first case before the United States Supreme Court, Frontiero versus Richardson, pushing the existing law even further and advocating for strict scrutiny to be applied to gender discrimination just as it is to racial discrimination. Four justices agreed with her and through a series of decisions after Frontiero, the court established a standard of intermediate scrutiny for constitutional issues of gender. By all accounts, and unsurprisingly for anyone who has seen her in action, her argument in Frontiero was brilliant. She spoke entirely from memory, did not consult a single note, and the justices apparently were so mesmerized that they didn't ask her any questions. In the Frontiero case, she used one of her great innovations in litigating gender discrimination cases, a male plaintiff, to show that sex-based distinctions harm us all. She continued this tactic throughout her career, arguing against the denial of Social Security benefits to widowed fathers that were given to widowed mothers, and against laws that denied men the same opportunity as women to care for their children. During her entire time at the ACLU, she made it her mission to get others to see what she saw so clearly, that the Constitution's Equal Protection and Due Process Clause covered issues of gender, as much as they covered issues of race, and that they could be used to advance the cause of full equality for women. The Roe versus Wade decision is part and parcel of that cause in that time period. I'm sure you all know what a privilege it is for us to hear from two people who not only had a front row seat for and substantial involvement in that critical decision, but whose careers ever since have been dedicated at the highest levels to the core principles of constitutional law. Please join me in welcoming Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Professor Jeff Stone. I'm delighted to welcome Justice Ginsburg uh, back to the law school. 
Um, the 1972-73 term of the Supreme Court, uh, as Dean Schill suggested, was one that um, focused in important ways upon the issues of women and the Constitution. And before turning to Roe v. Wade, I think because uh, Dean Schill spoke a bit about Frontiero, it would be useful to start our conversation there. Um, a bit of background is uh, until 1971, the Supreme Court um, had never held any law that discriminated against women to violate the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution. Uh, it had upheld laws that basically said women um, could not be bartenders, could not be lawyers, uh, didn't have to serve on juries. Uh, its basic view was that if there was any rational justification for a law discriminating against women, uh, the law was permissible and rational was defined in a very deferential manner. Um, in 1971, in the case that, that Dean Schill mentioned, Reed versus Reed, uh, the court, court did something surprising. Um, it held unconstitutional a law discriminating against women, uh, and it did so on the ground that the law was irrational. And this was a, a kind of anomalous decision because under the normal standards of what the court had always meant by rational, under the Equal Protection Clause, the law in Reed v. Reed was rational. But nonetheless, the court had clearly played a little fast and loose with its doctrine and held the law was unconstitutional. Um, two years later, during the 72-73 term, um, the court heard argument by Justice Ginsburg, then Judge, uh, then uh, Ms. Ginsburg, um, in front of Aubrey Richardson. I was, by the way, at the oral argument as a law clerk, so I can attest to uh, Dean Schill's uh, observation that it was a terrific argument. It really was dazzling. Um, and the basic argument in the case, well, let me start, let me stop there and, and ask Justice Ginsburg, um, what is it that you were trying to accomplish in Frontiero? Jeff, let me begin where you did, talking about how it was in the not-so-good old days when women couldn't be lawyers, bartenders, couldn't serve on juries unless they volunteered. There was a huge difference in attitude toward gender lines in the, in the law and race lines. I think the justices understood that race discrimination was an odious thing, but gender classifications were regarded as favorable to women as operating benignly to protect them. So the idea of not allowing uh, the mother and daughter gossip to be bartenders, bars were places where, where sometimes there's rough goings on. We need to protect the women from that kind of atmosphere. Same thing in courtrooms. Sometimes unpleasant things are said in the courtroom. The effort was to get the judges to see that gender discrimination was harmful to women, also men and children, to see these as not operating benignly in favor of women, but in fact putting them off in a cor corner, giving them a very small space in a world occupied by men, for them to see that what they regarded as a preference was in fact discrimination. That was the, the major effort. And, and legally, what was the, the 
argument that you have presented to the court in terms of um, how to get the court to change doctrine so as to, under, to, as to respond to that? We argued three, three ways, starting from the top, that is, because gender discriminations are most often harmful to people, that the court should look at them with a particular skepticism, almost akin to race discrimination. And if the court were not willing to go that far, then one notch down, what's today called intermediate scrutiny, I prefer to call it, um, to, to justify a gender line in the law, you must have an exceedingly persuasive justification. And then to say, in the end, drawing a line simply on the basis of gender is irrational. So that was three. We had all three tiers. The top, strict scrutiny. Um, the middle, exceedingly persuasive justification. And then rational basis. So, so at the core of the argument was this notion that, that laws that discriminated against women should no longer be thought of as uh, essentially innocuous or, or worse, beneficial. Um, and that to some degree they should be thought of um, as analogous to discrimination on the basis of race. Uh, and the question was whether the court then would basically abandon the rational basis approach for gender as it had abandoned it for race and instead demand a more persuasive justification. So what's interesting, I can add a little bit about what happened inside the court at this time. Um, after the, Justice Ginsburg made her argument, the judges went back to conference, and they voted to invalidate the challenged law, which discriminated against women. But they agreed to do so on the ground of the 1971 decision of Reed versus Reed, that basically we're going to say again the law is irrational and not reach any of the harder questions that Justice Ginsburg had put before the court. Um, and Justice Brennan, for whom I was a law clerk, was assigned the task of writing the majority opinion. And so Brennan went back, and, and we, we, I was the law clerk who was assigned the task of working with him on that opinion. And so he, he went back and he, he drafted the opinion that said this is irrational and decided this is just disingenuous. Right, that we can't really invalidate that on this ground and, and be acting in a principled way. In fact, there is real similarity between discrimination against women and discrimination against African Americans, as Justice Ginsburg had argued so forcefully both in the brief and in the oral argument, and that the, the, the principled way to address this question was to take that on um, head on. And so uh, Justice Brennan then wrote an alternative opinion that essentially copied Justice Ginsburg's brief um, uh, so I can say that because I'm the one who drafted it. <laughs> but and you know that, may, may I interject, Jeff, that that was always my aim. Uh, when, I was, <laughs> when, when I write, uh, when I wrote briefs, I wanted to give the court something that the court could convert into an opinion. Right, and it was, it, it was, it was a perfect brief from that standpoint. It was basically a judicial opinion on a silver platter. And that's what, an ideal, that's what an ideal brief gives a court. Um, so, so what Justice Brennan did then is to circulate both opinions to the other justices. And he said, the first one says that this law is irrational. Uh, the truth is, I don't think that's really a principled result. 
so I've drafted for myself this alternative opinion, which basically says discrimination against women uh, is especially problematic under the Equal Protection Clause and is unconstitutional um, unless there's a very persuasive justification. And that's the one I plan on signing myself. Is anybody interested in joining me? And very quickly, we received memos from Justices uh, Douglas, Marshall, and White saying that they agreed with the um, Ginsburg opinion. Uh, <laughs> and then we waited. And the problem was that several of the justices were very sympathetic to this approach. They understood that saying that the law was irrational was intellectually and doctrinally problematic, but the Equal Rights Amendment was still pending at that time. And uh, several of the justices, particularly Justices Stewart and Powell, I'm not giving you any secrets now, this is all public, um, Justices Stewart and Powell basically came to Brennan and said, um, we agree with you and with your opinion, but we just think it would be awkward for the court to take this position now while the Equal Rights Amendment is pending, because it would look as if we were trying, in some sense, to preempt the amendment process by essentially treating the Equal Protection Clause as if it was doing what the Equal Rights Amendment uh, would have done if it gets enacted. And Justice Brennan's response was, first of all, we have to decide this case on the basis of the Constitution as it now exists, and I'm convinced that the Equal Protection Clause invalidates this without regard to what happens in the political process with respect to the Equal Rights Amendment. And also, Justice Brennan argued that if we, if we take the approach you're suggesting, which is we wait and see, and if the Equal Rights Amendment doesn't get enacted, as in fact obviously didn't, he said uh, it'll be even more difficult for the court to do the right thing because then it'll look as if, okay, the country has rejected the Equal Rights Amendment, and now we're going to turn around and interpret the Equal Protection Clause as if the Equal Rights Amendment had been enacted. So that would be particularly problematic. But in any event, he was unable to persuade Justices Powell or Stewart, and Frontiero came down as a decision invalidating the challenge law, but with only four justices adopting the Ginsburg approach, um, and uh, the others concurring on, a, on this narrower approach. So I'm curious, Justice Ginsburg, what was your re reaction when the opinion finally came down and you saw what the court had done or not done? I thought... Well, Ari Nair, who was then head of the ACLU, came to me with this opinion and said, Ruth, you got four to sign on to uh, sex as a suspect classification. And I said, my reaction was, I should have waited until there were five. <laughs> because my, what, what happened with that Brennan opinion is that then the court stood, stood still. It wasn't going to go up to strict scrutiny. It was going to stay where it was on this middle middle plane. So I stopped arguing for strict scrutiny and we used, we used the in intermediate standard which the court finally acknowledged it was applying. But you write about Powell and he was explicit in his opinion. He said we ought not go there while the Equal Rights Amendment is in the political hopper. And that was their justification. Well there wasn't going to be an Equal Rights Amendment. But in um, Craig against Bourne, another Brennan opinion, the court finally said, elevated scrutiny applies to gender classifications. We should be suspicious about them and announce this middle tier. But instead of doing it in a case like Sally Reed's or Sharon Frontier, 
They did it in what I call the near beer case. Oklahoma had a very silly law that said women can buy 3.2 beer at age 18, but the thirsty boys have to wait till 21. <laughs> so in that frothy case, <laughs> the court declared that gender classifications got elevated, intermediate, intermediate scrutiny. They didn't do it in frontier. Obviously, they were poor for strict scrutiny. And the next case, um, Stephen Weisenfeld's case about a man whose wife died in childbirth, left him sole surviving parent, wanted to care for his child personally, but Social Security gave mother's benefits, not father's benefits. The, the court was unanimous in, in that case, but they didn't refer to anything about an elevated standard of review. So I thank you. Perhaps if Brennan had waited for there to be one more, then we would have had sex as a suspect classification, but who knows. I actually don't think so. But. <laughs> um, oh, let's turn to Rome. Uh, so the other case that was percolating in the court at the exact same time, these two cases were happening simultaneously, um, was Roe versus Wade. Um, and I guess we should, to, to set the stage for that, um, when you were a young woman, um, what was it like? What were the options available to, for a woman who found herself with an unwanted pregnancy? What was, what was the world like for someone faced with that dilemma? For most young women, it was to marry the guy, and that's what happened, and I don't think that that was a recipe for living happily ever after. Uh, some people, in the, uh, abortion, was criminal in the United States. So if a woman found a, a doctor or anyone willing to perform a, an abortion, she was taking a tremendous risk. If you were well healed, well, there were places you could go abroad. So Cuba, I think, was the nearest place, but some people went to Switzerland or as far as Japan. But for most, most, um, young women, the, not solution, but the only, the only way to deal with it was to marry them. So most people don't realize, by the way, that, that in the United States until the late 19th century, uh, abortion was not a crime until uh, quickening, which was basically the midpoint of pregnancy. Um, and it was only in the 1870s and later that uh, abortion became a crime uh, in most jurisdictions from day one uh, of pregnancy. Uh, and as Justice Ginsburg says, by the time we get to the 1950s, uh, that was universally the law, and women did face this, this problem, uh, and men derivatively faced the problem to the extent they were, uh, took it seriously, uh, of there not being any option. Now, in the 1960s, this began to change. A few states began to modify their abortion laws, um, allowing early-term uh, abortions if 
the doctor found that it was necessary to serve the life or health of the mother. Um, what do you of think? the woman. Of the, of, the, of the woman, thank you, yes, of the woman. Um, so what do you think brought about this change after 90 years of, of pretty much a single position against abortion? One aspect of it was the women's movement, which was coming alive, not just in the, in the United States, but all over the world. And Jeff, I'm sure you remember the case of Sherry Finkbein. Mm -hmm. This was a woman from Arizona who had taken thalidomide. The forecast was that, that if the pregnancy went to term, the child would be severely deformed. She chose to have an abortion, and she came to Sweden to have it. She could have it there safely. Uh, and there was a lot of, uh, in the U.S. press about, about her case. And, and so women began to think, well, why shouldn't I be able to make this decision, this most important decision for myself? Why should it be the government who makes the decision for me? I think the revived feminist movement in which the United States was one of many participants explains the difference, but perhaps you have a different idea, Jeff. No, I, I think, I think that, that obviously was the, the, the primary motivation. And so what, what, be, what happened is a few states began to liberalize their laws. Um, and there was began to be a pushback, uh, particularly from the Catholic Church. There was a pretty strong pushback against this uh, this early set of changes. Um, in New York, for example, uh, the state of New York had enacted a, uh, a more uh, liberal abortion law, um, and then the Catholic Church opposed it aggressively, and the legislature actually voted to repeal the law. And Governor Nelson Rockefeller vetoed the the action by the state legislature. Um, one thing interesting noting about the attitudes at this time, by the way, is that Republicans were much more favorable towards abortion at that era than Democrats. Um, and public opinion polls consistently showed this, that although the majority of Americans uh, were in favor of liberalized abortion laws, uh, it was Republicans who were more inclined and Democrats who were more opposed. And the reason for that was because most Catholics were Democrats, and so was, even though today we would automatically assume the opposite, um, the fact that Rockefeller vetoed this law was not un unusual because the Republican Party at that time was actually more uh, sympathetic than the Democratic Party. Um, so Roe v. Wade comes along, and uh, the court, in a seven-to-two decision, uh, holds uh, abortion laws in the United States pretty much across the board as they then were written, at least, unconstitutional. Um, and just a couple of preliminary observations about the case that are worth noting. People today think Roe v. Wade, when it was decided, was seen by the court or even by the public as a highly controversial and divisive decision. But in fact, it wasn't. Uh, Roe was a 7-2 decision. It wasn't 5-4. Um, three of the four Nixon appointees supported and one wrote the majority opinion. 
um, public opinion was very substantially supportive of Roe v. Wade. Um, although there was a sharp Catholic response, one of the interesting moments in the court that year is, is Justice Blackman and Justice Brennan were inundated with tens of thousands of uh, letters, mainly written by parochial school kids, um, essentially calling them murderers. Uh, Blackman because he authored the opinion and Brennan because he was the only Catholic justice. Um, but in terms of the, the national response, it was actually pretty muted. Um, and Justice Stevens likes to tell the story that when he was nominated to the Supreme Court a couple of years later, um, he, he was not asked a single question in his confirmation proceedings about uh, Roe v. Wade or about abortion. It just wasn't thought of yet as controversial. Uh, so it is important to understand that at the time, even within the court, um, Roe was thought to be a difficult case in terms of the constitutional analytical issue, but not really seen as the kind of um, a politically shattering decision that we, looking back, have come to see it as. Jeff, to, to put a footnote to that, there was another uh, reproductive choice case before the court that term. I don't know if you remember it, but it was Captain Susan Strzok against the Secretary of Defense. Mm -hmm. It would have been a my choice for the first reproductive freedom case to come before the U.S. Supreme Court. This was Captain Strzok's story. She was in service in Vietnam when she became pregnant. In those days, pregnancy was automatic ground for discharge from the service. Captain Strzok's commanding officer said, Susan, you have a choice. You can have an abortion on base. This is 7071. You can have an abortion on base, which the military offered to women in service or dependents of men in service. Or if you're not going to do that, you're out. Captain Strzok said, I am a Roman Catholic. I will not have an abortion, but I have arranged to surrender this child at birth for adoption. I would use only my accumulated leave time. She lost that argument with the commanding officer. They shipped her back to the West Coast. She was stationed in Seattle. And then uh, a very able, diligent lawyer for the ACLU of the state of Washington got her discharge, stayed month by month, so she was always inside fighting to stay in rather than out trying to get back in. Anyway, she lost in the district court challenging that you're pregnant, you're out rule. She lost in the Court of Appeals, but two to one, where the Dunaway wrote an excellent dissent in the Ninth Circuit. And then I wrote a petition for cert together with Joel Gora, the ACLU. The Supreme Court granted cert. We began to prepare. We wrote the two briefs at the same time, the Frontier Brief and Captain Strzok's brief. 
We were notified that the Solicitor General had filed a motion to remand the case for consideration of mootness. Why? Because he had persuaded the Air Force to waive Captain Strzok's discharge and to change the regulation prospectively. So now the rule was you're pregnant. If you want to stay in, you can make an application and we will or will not grant it. So Susan was not going to be discharged. The Solicitor General filed a motion asking for the case to be returned for consideration of mootness. I called her and said, Susan, is there anything we can say to show that your case is still alive? And she first said, I would not have chosen to be assigned to mine at Air Force Base, but we can't make much of that. And then she said, I've got all my pay and allowances. Uh, there is one thing. My dream is to be a pilot. But the Air Force doesn't give flight training to women. This is 1972. We laughed because we knew that was still an impossible dream to challenge the restriction on flight training. Now I think it would be impossible to try to defend such, mm -hmm. an, such an exclusion. But that was Captain Strzok's case. And uh, the idea of getting that to the court first was to say, government should stay out of this. Here's Susan Strzok. She wants to make the decision for birth, but the government is saying you do so at the cost of your job. I wish that had been the first case. I think the court would have better understood that this was a question about a woman's choice. But the, I don't know if, if the, the, I wasn't an insider as you were, whether the court ever made a connection between Susan Strzok's case and Roe v. Wade. I don't recall that they did. I mean, they may have been, it's been 40 years, but I, I, uh, I don't recall that anyone inside the court connected the, the, the pregnancy discrimination issue with the abortion issue in the way you just described it. Um, but, but let's suppose that, that uh, a woman in 1971 is um, prosecuted for having had an abortion um, in the state of Alabama and she raises the defense that she had a constitutional right to have an abortion. Um, and that case, let's, let's suppose, came to the Supreme Court in lieu of Roe. Um, and you were a justice at that time. You, um, you're, you're presupposing that she's going to be prosecuted. Which I'm presupposing. I, I think it's, it's an unlikely... Uh, we could have the doctor prosecuted. Yes, the doctor. Okay, the, the doctor would ordinarily be it would be the doctor. Okay, uh, if you prefer but, the doctor, that's okay. But it's okay, you want to make it... I was trying to make the most dramatic and easy case, but... Yeah. <laughs> the doctor is a harder case because of medical regulations about safe and sanitary conditions. But the state just says any doctor mm -hmm. who performs an abortion goes to jail. Yeah. So if you were on the court and that was the case that was presented, how do you think you would have ruled back in 1973? Well, 
with the hindsight, with with Roe as the precedent, with Roe as the precedent. No, no, no Roe. Clean slate. Why do you think that case is different from what was the Roe case of a woman who was pregnant and there were there were a few plaintiffs there. There was a, there was a doctor, uh, all arguing to have the state of Texas law declared unconstitutional. Why should there be any difference um, between the response to the woman uh, who was being prosecuted for having had an abortion, or uh, I think they would they would have come out the same way because, as you pointed out. Roe was a 72 decision. It wasn't controversial at the time. The Susan Strzok's case is both during the Nixon administration, and it's the Nixon administration that is tolerating having army bases, armed forces bases, make abortion available to women in service, dependents of men in, in service. So, so at that time, it didn't seem controversial. It didn't seem controversial to the, to the court. I think you were quite right in pointing out that there was more Republican support than Democratic support. Some people thought that that was what was an aspect of the population, zero population growth idea. If, mm -hmm. if birth could be uh, limited, we would all be better off for it because there wouldn't be too many people in the world. So I think that, that the concern for population growth in the early 70s was a factor, was a factor in it. What I'm trying to get at, though, is simply, if you were on the court in, at the time of Roe, right, how would you have voted? Any variations of the cases is fine. I would, I would have said this most extreme law is unconstitutional. Texas allowed abortion only to save the life of the woman. She could be left totally debilitated, and it wouldn't matter. She could have been the victim of rape or incest, and it wouldn't matter. The only thing was her life. That was too extreme, and I think it would have been quite easy for the court to rally around a decision that said stacking the deck against the woman that way is just too far to go. My notion was that if the court, instead of covering, covering the country so that every abortion law, even the most liberal, did not measure up to the court's decision, had simply written small, had said this most extreme law is unconstitutional. Then the change that was occurring in states, like my home state, was one of the, in the early 70s, was New York, California, Hawaii, and I think Alaska. Alaska. If a woman could travel to one of those states, she could have a safe uh, abortion. So, okay, so, so basically, the one question in Roe is if the court was going to invalidate the law, 
how broadly would it do so? So what, what Justice Ginsburg, Ginsburg has suggested is that from her perspective, at that moment, the right decision would be a very narrow decision, which would have said the Texas law that was actually at issue in the case, <clears throat> which prohibited any abortion except to save the life of the mother, is unconstitutional. And we don't have to decide whether any of the other restrictions are permissible. What, what, didn't, what, what I had difficulty understanding <clears throat> at the time, Jeff, is here is Sally Reed's case. Sally Reed is a woman from Boise, Idaho. Her young teenage son died under tragic circumstances. She and her husband were divorced. The boy died when he was in the custody of his father. Sally wanted to be appointed administrator of his estate, and the law of Idaho at the time said, as between per persons equally entitled to administer a decedent's estate, males must be preferred to females. Just that clear was the perfect first case. But here is Reed at the court, and the court writes very small, as you said, it was, this is an irrational, irrational classification. And at the same term, it decides Roe v. Wade, in a stunning opinion, that makes every abortion law in the country unconstitutional. So Reed said, this most extreme law is no good. But Roe said, any restraint, we're going to do the whole job all at once. No, in the first trimester, no restrictions. In the second trimester, restrictions in the interest of the health of the woman. That they wrote this entire charter to cover to cover the waterfront where in Reed they rode so small. I couldn't understand why the justices in that very same term took such a different view of how far and how fast the court should move. But in Frontiero, <clears throat> you were asking the court to yeah. take a huge step. Yeah. You were not asking the court to say, we'll go one step at a time, we'll, we'll sort of play it by ear over, over a 20-year period as to how much discrimination right. it can be against women. You were doing exactly, in your argument in Frontiero, you were saying, okay, none of this incrementalism, right? Women are like African-Americans. Let's just forget about all the intermediate steps. Well, not quite. Yes, I made a very <coughs> strong argument um, for sex as a suspect classification. I put that first. You persuaded me. But my notion was that I would do that four or five times. And the fifth time, the court would say, ah, now we've declared this law unconstitutional. That Now we see the light. That's what I said before. I wanted them to buy my argument, but not so soon. Not, <laughs> not the second time up at bat. That, that was, my notion was, so it introduced this idea, which was in the read brief as well. Um, and, and then, maybe the fourth, maybe the fifth, maybe the sixth time, they confronted the same argument. So you were just too persuasive. So, <laughs> so, that, that, so while I made the argument, I really expected that the court would wait to hear it again and again before, before they made that. So in, in Roe, what the court did, as Justice Ginsburg said, instead of taking this very incrementalist, narrow approach and saying, okay, the Texas law is unconstitutional, but we're not going to decide anything 
about what other restrictions can be placed on, their, on, on a woman's ability to choose. All we're going to say is Texas law is unconstitutional. Um, so, so then suppose the next case came up and, and, and the state said, well, um, uh, a woman can have uh, uh, an abortion if she's um, been raped. And the, but, the, but the party to the case is somebody who wasn't raped. Right? So would you again say, okay, that's, that law is unconstitutional, but we don't decide any more than that. So this, this is a kind of incrementalism that you would, you would have thought appropriate. No, but some things would have happened in the interim, that is the state legislatures would have reacted in it. As they, they, there was a range of positions at the time of Roe. It wasn't so, uh, it, it was fluid. I mean, there, there were many states that had adopted the position of the American Law Institute, which was a grounds. So the, there was rape, incest, there was uh, the woman's health, mental or physical, that so there was the most extreme law, Texas, which was a no except to save the, the woman's life. Then there were the states in between with various grounds. And then there were states like New York, where at least the first trimester, it was a, it was a woman's choice. The, the, an, another um, feature of Roe is Roe really isn't about the woman's choice, is it? It's about the doctor's freedom to practice his profession as he thinks best. You never, you read the Roe opinion, you will never see the woman standing alone. It's always the woman in consultation with her physician. So the picture that I got from that, from that decision was tall doctor and little woman needing, needing his advice and care. It wasn't woman-centered. It was physician-centered because Roe was not, not just restricting the woman's choice. It was telling the doctor, even if it is in your best medical judgment that this person have an abortion, you can't exercise that best medical judgment. So that, that was, a, I don't know if any of the justices on the court appreciated that aspect of it, that it was very much about the doctor's freedom to practice his profession. No, I have to say, being inside the court, I don't think anyone inside the court actually felt the case that way. Justice Blackman, because of his own idiosyncratic background, right, with the Mayo Clinic, stuck the doctor in the story in a way that I think nobody wanted to upset the apple cart to, to try to force him to pull it out. But I think the truth is that the justices understood it very much the way that you just described, uh, with the possible exception of Blackman. Um, and, uh, and it is interesting that they didn't, they didn't sort of try to get Blackman to, to alter the opinion. But, but let's, let's put how the opinion was written in that way aside for the moment. A, a key question is, um, did Roe get to the right place constitutionally? So suppose it took 10 years instead of all at one time, right? Ultimately, did the court get to the right place constitutionally? I think that the 
pattern in, in Roe, well, Roe built on Griswold against Connecticut. Now, the Supreme Court had never had anything about um, planned par parenthood until Griswold against Connecticut. And Griswold, probably most of the law students know, it was a Connecticut law that made the use of contraceptives by a married couple unconstitutional. So the court went on a notion of a, a right to privacy. You can see in that setting, you think of the police going into the marital bedroom looking for telltale signs of the use of contraceptives. So, so Griswold started out in that privacy line. And then the next case was Eisenstadt against Baird, where um, a well-known advocate of, of birth control was having a meeting at some college auditorium and giving out contraceptives. He, the, the law prohibited giving contraceptives to unmarried people. So that's the first time an equal protection strain comes into it because Griswold was privacy, privacy is marital bedroom. Then we have Eisenstadt against Baird and it's the, the line is being drawn between married couples, they can have access to contraceptives, unmarried couples cannot, and, and Brennan wrote that decision to saying that line makes no sense to say that we're going to punish the unmarried people uh, and not allow them to have access to contraceptives. So that, that had introduced the equal protection strain, but Griswold was, was the model, was the model for how Roe was argued, was going to be argued as a privacy case, uh, not, as a, not as a women's rights case. That, that was, the briefs that the Supreme Court got were of that nature. But there were other cases, because there were abortion cases all over the country at the time. Women Against Connecticut particularly stressed that this is not about privacy. It's not your decision to have an abortion is not necessarily private. It's about your right as a woman to control your own life's course. That was, that was not in, in the, you, you don't pick that up in real, that aspect of it, that this is not about privacy. This is about one's choice of how one will live. Right, so the court clearly does not write a women's rights opinion in Roe. It talks about the, the, the personal autonomy of an individual to control one's own life in terms of certain matters, such as whether to bear or beget a child. And, and so it does draw upon Griswold, which talked about contraception, and extends that um, to Roe. But, but, but it's interesting that the court does not talk at all in Roe about the rights of women. And, and, and part of the reason for that, I think, this brings us back to Frontiero, because the, the justices were not prepared at that time to accept the proposition that laws that disadvantaged women 
were to be tested by heightened scrutiny of any kind. And the, had, had, had Brennan been able to get a fifth vote in Frontiero, then it's possible Roe could have been written on the ground that the law in Roe discriminated against women. But given the fact that you couldn't get the fifth vote in Frontiero, there was no way to make an argument that the law in Roe was invalid because it discriminated against women, because if that was the issue, it was clear the court was going to apply a very low-level test, and, and certainly the state's interest on the abortion question is much more credible than the issue on all of the other kinds of issues where women are being discriminated against in terms of the life of the, of the fetus and so on. So, so the court was caught in this dilemma, right? And that's partly why the, the term was so interesting, because had they been able to come together on your approach in Frontiero, then they, it might have been possible for them to write Roe as a law that discriminates, invalidating on the grounds that discriminates against women. But, but if they also, if, if they had paid attention to my brief instruct, which of course they didn't because, it, because they had no need to read it, the case was remanded on mootness ground, but my brief was filed there, which centered on the woman's choice of whether she will uh, carry the pregnancy to term or abort it. The, the, I think that surely would have been eye-opening. Maybe one of the things is in those days, how many cases, when you were clerking, how many cases was the court deciding a year? About 180. Yeah. So they had no time, really, to put one thing together with another. You just had to, I guess you had to churn them out. And when you got, when you circulated, that's when I said, how did they let that Blackman opinion through without, because they had so many cases, I think, that he wrote it, it came out the way they had voted that it would come out, and so it was, it was left alone. That wouldn't happen today when we have between 70 and 80 cases. So, so basically, Justice Ginsburg has offered two critiques of Roe. One of them is that the, the court went too far. It should have been much more modest in what it invalidated. It should have invalidated the Texas statute and not gotten into all the other questions that the opinion got into about first trimester and second trimester and when the state can regulate abortion and when it can't regulate abortion. It should have simply said it's unconstitutional for the state to prohibit abortion except to save the life of the mother, and we don't decide anything else about what other restrictions might or might not be constitutional. Leave that for another day. And, and whereas the court, interestingly, given that it was seven Republican-appointed justices and, and three of the four Nixon justices, was extremely activist, right? This was a very activist opinion. Um, and said, so that's one, one criticism. And the other criticism is that the court wrote an opinion that was less focused, indeed not at all focused, on what Justice Ginsburg believes it should have been the core issue, which is the rights of women to control their own lives, and instead writes this opinion in much more, uh, in ways that are, that are removed from that as the, as the core question. So, so but let, let's, let's look at the, because I know one of the things you've said many times, and, and, and including recently, is that um, it mattered that Roe went as far as it did in a negative sense. It's not just that as a matter of taste, you would have rather have seen the, the court be incremental rather than bold, but rather that we have paid a huge price because the court made the decision to be that activist, that aggressive, that bold in taking on the entire issue of abortion 
as opposed to writing a much narrower opinion with a much more limited effect. Um, so be, I think it would be interesting for you to talk a bit about, about how you see the, the effect of the Roe decision on the polity and on what's happened in this country over the last 40 years. Roe became a symbol, I think, for the right to life movement. Um, there's an annual parade in D.C. Uh, on the day that Roe was decided, January 20-something. They had a single target to hit at. This decision, this most undemocratic decision by nine um, justices who nobody elected to make policy for the country, that charge, that, that what a, a great organizing tool it is. You have a name, you have a symbol, Roe v. Wade, you can aim at that. This decision was made not in the ordinary democratic process, but by these nine unelected men. I know that Reva Siegel and Linda Greenhouse have written persuasively about the abortion, anti-abortion movement began before and it continued after, and Roe didn't, didn't cause this backlash. But I think there's no getting away from the presence of a single, this, a single target to aim at. How many, how often has the name Roe Roe v. Wade, Roe v. Wade, um, been the center of the opposition. That was my concern, that the court had given the opponents of access to abortion a target to aim at relentlessly and attributed it not to the democratic process but to nine un unelected old men, that choice to make. So that, that was my, my criticism of Roe is that it seemed to have stopped the momentum, which was an momentum was in, on the side of a change. And I made a comparison in this country between no-fault divorce and access to abortion. When I was the age of most people here in my home state, there's only one ground for divorce adultery. Inside of 10 years, every state in the nation had changed to some form of no-fault divorce. And I, I envisioned that there would be a similar thing with abortion. It'd first be states like New York that said at least in the first trimester, it's up to the woman. Then there'd be the states in between following the ALI model, maybe the ALI in light of the changes in the country would, would, would change its position. I expected much more back and forth, much more dialogue in, among uh, people who, who play in the political process. That's, that's what I, uh, that would have been my ideal picture of how, how this issue would have gotten re resolved instead of having the, the Supreme Court as the the single 
decision-maker and, of course, the, the, the history of the years since then is that the moment, momentum has been on the other side. The cases that we get now on abortion are all about restrictions on access to abortion and not about expanding the, the rights of the woman. So there's a, a huge counterfactual right, problem here in trying to figure out you know, what would have happened had things been different. Right? So uh, one scenario is that Roe v. Wade created essentially the moral majority. And the, the evangelical and Catholic um, response to Roe and, and the political response to Roe that has made it a divisive, complicated political issue to this day. And, that, that, and that's a huge negative. And that if, if the court instead had taken a much more modest approach and allowed the process to work itself out through the legislative process in all the different states, that we would never have had this, this um, response to Roe v. Wade. There wouldn't have been a Roe v. Wade in anybody's consciousness. Um, and it all would have worked out in the end. So most state legislatures, maybe all state legislatures, would have come around to liberalizing abortion laws. Um, and we wouldn't have had this, this feedback. The problem, of course, those who, who disagree with Justice Ginsburg uh, would say that that's a nice counterfactual, but it's not realistic. Um, and and, and the, just to give the opposite perspective on it, there's, there's two sort of, at least two components to the, to the opposite uh, perspective. Uh, the first is simply that at the time of Roe, uh, no one could have anticipated what was going to happen. At the time of Roe, the justices thought this was not going to be all that big a deal. They knew it would be at the moment an issue. What they didn't know would happen was that the Republican Party would latch onto Roe as a way of trying to draw Catholics out of the Democratic Party into the Republican Party. And, and to use it as a, a lever in, in the political system, and therefore to, to make it into Roe v. Wade, as we now see it, rather than as a decision which would have not made that big of a, uh, a wave. Uh, and so the justices at the time, I think it's fair to say, were, were oblivious to this possibility. And indeed, it didn't happen for quite some years. Um, as Justice Stevens pointed out, as I mentioned earlier, and he was not even asked a single question about Roe v. Wade where he was, he was confirmed. So this was a political development driven by politics that occurred several years after Roe. And so at the time of Roe, at least, this was not something at least any of the justices certainly anticipated. Um, and the second thing, of course, is whether the counterfactual is true, right? Um, would it have been the case that today, if the court had been much more modest in Roe, that we would be in a better position with respect to women's right to choose if it had been left to the legislative process, right? One scenario is that it would have been like no-fault divorce and most states would have adopted it. Another possible scenario is that um, 10 states might have allowed abortion even to this day. The vast majority of states would not have allowed it. Um, and for millions of women every year, they would have been in a much, more, much worse position than they are today in not, terms of access. Not, not if they could buy a... a plane or a train ticket, and that was, that, so let's say there were 10 states. People would see more and more that the answer to the question, does a woman in the United States have access to abortion? Yes, if she can buy a train ticket to get herself to another state or a plane ticket. That once, once you have, it just as in the case of divorce, once you have a number of states doing it, then there is access provided the woman is 
sophisticated enough to find out that she's pregnant early enough and can travel. That is essentially what we have, what we have come to. That's the situation in the United States just now, where many states have severe restrictions on access, but any woman in those states can get out of it simply by traveling someplace else in the United States. Um, I, I would just throw back, not, not a convincing argument, but an argument that is worth thinking about is one could have made the same type of argument in Brown, Brown versus Board of Education, and said, well, if you don't like living in a state that has segregation, move to a different state, right? The Supreme Court doesn't have to invalidate segregation in Alabama. If you don't like it, you know, move to, move to Pennsylvania. Um, and I'm sure you wouldn't have accepted that argument there. Uh, but but, but the, the answer to that would be, well, yeah, moving your family is a much more difficult thing than buying a train ticket. So there is that difference. So I want to leave time for questions. Um, so there's a microphone up there. Um, for those of you who would like to ask um, the justice questions, I assume none of you want to ask me questions, which is fine. Um, you should go to the microphone right back there. And um, uh, the justice has been gracious enough to agree to, um, to take some of your questions. It, well, I'd just like to say something in reference to Jeff's Last comment, because I would want the young people to be aware of it. Uh, that's Brown v. Board. You said, well, could we make that? The reality was that we had just fought a war, World War II, a war against racism. We went into that war with segregated troops. How long could segregation, apartheid, exist in the United States when we had just fought this war against racism? In Brown v. Board, the government filed a brief uh, on, the, on the side of the, the children and their parents and said essentially, we are being embarrassed in our international relations by maintaining segregation in our schools. The Soviet Union particularly is using our example, uh, showing the United States as a society that mistreats many of its people. This, uh, the plea was very strong from the State Department. Come out against segregation, Supreme Court, and we will no longer have this huge embarrassment to face in our international So the relations. court does the bidding of the State Department. Well, <laughs> it, it certainly helps to have the government on the side of change. Uh, is there really no question? Oh, here we go. Yes, sir. And now, please, of the others of you who are interested, get Yes. Uh, first, thanks so much, Justice Ginsburg, for coming here. I think we're all really thrilled um, by this event. I was wondering, uh, I, I think a lot of us were surprised by your response about how the court should have handled the abortion debate. And I was wondering, do you think the abortion issue is uniquely one that should have been left to the democratic process? Is there something special about it? Or in general, should these sorts of contentious issues be resolved that way? No, I didn't say, I did not say it should have been left to the democratic process. I, I suggested that it would have been healthy if there had been a di dialogue, just as there were, was in the gender discrimination cases. In that decade of the 70s, wasn't the court acting all alone, but the court decided a case, this gender line is no good, state legislatures, the U.S. Code, the entire U.S. Code was canvassed to identify all of the gender lines in it, and most of them were changed. So it was, every, the whole political system was moving. The court 
was putting a stamp of approval on the side of the change. The legislatures were looking at their laws, getting rid of the obsolete ones. It was every, it's a way, it's a very, very healthy way for a democracy to operate when everybody is, is involved in thinking about change and what is good for the society. So it was hardly that the court should have stayed out of it, but the court in the gender discrimination cases, for example, every year or two came out with another decision that said this gender line is arbitrary. It was that dialogue, the conversation, the different players in, in the political process were engaged in that I thought was, was healthy for the system. Thank you. I didn't hear the end of the question. The question is whether you think that in light of the fact that there's been uh, so much legislation across the nation trying to restrict various aspects of the, um, the right to abortion, that, that this might lead the court to reevaluate Roe itself. Uh, I've been asked that question, and one of my, one of my responses to it is, you know, it's not going to matter that much. Take the worst case scenario. Suppose the court, which is precedent bound, and has already once said in the Casey case that Roe v. Wade is the precedent and we're going to adhere to it. But take the worst case. Suppose the decision were overruled. You will have a number of states that will never go back to the way it was. And then again, it will be a question of is access available in the United States? Yes, it is. Any woman who is fortunate enough to be living in one of those states or any woman who can travel to those states. Frankly, who it leaves out are poor women. So if you have the sophistication and the money, you are going to have some place in the United States where your choice can be exercised in a safe manner. But if you don't have the wherewithal, then you may be stuck. And that would be the situation in the United States if the court were to turn around on Roe v. Wade. It would mean that poor, poor women have no choice. And that doesn't make much sense, I think, as a matter of national policy. Thank you. Hi, thanks so much for coming and speaking For the people who were involved in litigating in litigating Roe v. Wade, they were riding with a winner. They had a, a winner in Griswold, so they, that's the argument that they made. The other 
the the idea is that the idea that a woman should be able to control her own life force to make that most important decision. It seems to me that that is really the, the principle at, at stake. No one is pro-abortion in, in the sense that they would like to encourage women to get abortions. The question is, if the woman has an unplanned pregnancy, should she, should she have the choice? What was the first part of her question? Uh, can you repeat it? Sure, I'm sorry. Um, how influential was the development of the right to life movement to the creation of the undue burden standard established in Casey? I don't think that the political movement ex explains the undue burden. There were people who were troubled by how far and how fast Roe had gone and wanted a more moderate approach. So that, that was, but I, I don't think that they, the, the court said, oh my goodness, look, look what's going on and we have this right to life movement, we have to do something uh, to show that, that we are, that, that we are reactive to that movement we are responsive to it. I don't think that was the case. I think it was a, a concern that here was this decision um, that maybe was not very judicial, so it should be cut back to the way the justices who came up with the undue burden test, the, the way they, the way they described it. Thank you, Justice Ginsburg, for uh, coming and speaking with us. Um, my question was, uh, in, a, in a United States like ours, where women generally have the right to abortion, uh, is it right to impose obligations on fathers to pay child support uh, that when they would choose not to carry the baby? Yeah, on, on that one, I think both state legislatures have said that you, you, you are a parent of a child, you have an obligation to support um, man or, or, or woman. And the child is there, you are its parent, you are obliged to support it. So I suppose I would not be enthusiastic about legislation to say if the man offers to pay for the abortion, then he's off the hook, he's got free. <laughs> I don't really like that solution any more than the, what, the, what the solution used to be in the old days of a, of a guy who, who was um, 
who was sued as being the father of a child, and he would then bring five of his buddies to say, we slept with that woman at the same time. So, mm -hmm. so I think that the child is there. The date's interest is that that, that, that child should, should be supported. And if there is a parent, male or female, around, then it will cost the state less than <laughs> if the state <laughs> has to pay for it. Thank you so much for coming. Uh, you're a big role model for a lot of the young women on campus, and it's an honor to have you here. Uh, I'm curious to what degree you think the role of morality and human rights principles are important as a litigator or as a justice in terms of women's rights law decisions? I suppose morality and rights is what's behind our whole conception of our Bill of Rights behind the, um, the contemporary human rights documents in the United Nations, in Europe, all over. It is, isn't, isn't that a reflection of morality? I think so. Um, I, I'd be curious to, to ask your sense of because um, basically what you've put forth here is a very um, restrained view of the role of the court and how the court should, uh, should act. Uh, but in recent years, a lot of the criticism, interestingly, has come from the other side. So traditionally, at least in the last half century or so, it's been primarily uh, conservatives who've uh, criticized the court uh, for making aggressive, what they perceive to be aggressive decisions in a liberal direction, whether it be the Warren Court or Roe v. Wade and so on. Um, but in more recent years, it's been uh, essentially liberals who have criticized um, conservative justices in, for cases like um, Heller involving Second Amendment and guns or Citizens United involving uh, issues like um, uh, campaign finance reform. Uh, of being extremely aggressive in their interpretation of the Constitution and essentially doing uh, pretty much what the court did in a row except on these other issues. Um, is, that, is that, do you think, a fair critique? Well, I think it depends on whose ox is being gored. <laughs> and that's what's, uh, I mean, and I think if you, if you judge activism by overturning the legislative product, this current court has to rank very high on the activism scale. And I have to rank very, very high on the restraint scale. I mean, think of, um, just take something like punitive damages. Punitive damages, there are many people concerned that they've gone sky high, got to do something to put a lid on it. And if the legislature won't put a lid on it because there are too many lawyers represented in the legislature, <laughs> then we gotta get the court, we gotta get the high court to say it violates due process. And more and more the court has said, yes, we agree with that argument. Dam damages go too high, it violates due process. I think that I'm just about the only holdout on the other side. You know, mm -hmm. real states' rights person. This is up to the states and the legislature to decide what kind of tort system they want to have. 
and it's not for the federal government to tell them they have to have a ceiling on damages. But it, I, I've been used to watch how, how the court is really, that they're using due process, substantive due process in that area. Very active mm -hmm. activists, don't you think? But the people who were down on the Warren Court would be applauding that kind of activism. So I said it depends on who's is being rewarded. Is, is, there, is, is the principled approach, do you think, one of basically judicial restraint? Is that the right approach? Do I think that... The, the right approach for a justice to take yes. in interpreting the Constitution is judicial restraint. Well, it is not restraint in the sense that you keep things as they are. You stop um, any development of the law. It's that you, as I said earlier, the, the court can put its stamp of approval on the side of change and let that change develop in the political process instead of saying no and not permitting the political system to evolve. That's, that's essentially my, my view of it. Another question? Hi, Justice Ginsburg. Um, I was fortunate to recently be able to see the Makers documentary that was on PBS that you were in. And at the end of the documentary, it seemed like a lot of the women who they interviewed who were involved in the women's rights movement in the 70s and the 80s seemed to feel like the movement is kind of dying out now with our generation. And I was curious where you see the women's rights movement going today and what you think women in general and women in law school can do in the future to bring about greater equality for women. It's a sadness to me that in some places the word feminism is considered the F word. <laughs> but all it means is you think that women should have the same opportunities, that boys and girls should have the same opportunities to use their God-given talent to be whatever they, whatever they want to and have the ability to be. That's what being a feminist means, it's true to be you and me. And I think that uh, it's, it's unfortunate that the young women today, for example, I would love to see the Equal Rights Amendment adopted now. Young women don't seem to care about it, but if you pick up any constitution in the world written since 1950, you will find an Equal Rights Amendment in it. Ours doesn't have one makes me feel bad for my granddaughters that they don't see that in the pocket constitution. That's something that young women could care about, but now uh, all the doors are open. It's no, no longer women not wanted, not wanted here. But we haven't come all the way, as I think uh, one aspect of the Walmart case illustrated. It is a test for women to become middle managers. So they go through the whole process. They're doing very well, except for the final interview. And at the final interview, they flunk disproportionately. Why? Well, the interviewer sees someone who looks like the interviewer, and you tr tend to trust people. You know what you are. You trust people who look like you. The woman is different, so all things considered, you will prefer yourself, you'll prefer 
the man for the job, making people realize that unconscious bias, these are not people who are out there to discriminate against women to put them down, but it's that unconscious bias that's still operating that women must overcome. Um, and then there is the problem of how do you combine successfully a family life and a work life? Those are issues that young women should, should care about. And they should also be interested in helping women who are not able to help themselves. The women who are going to this law school, you will have many, many opportunities. But what about the girl who has had a, who has been undereducated, who dropped out of school when she was a teenage and pregnant? Helping raise the level of all women, I think, is something that women should be concerned about. We have time for one more question. Thank you. All right, I know almost nothing about this, but one of my most fundamental misunderstandings is why doesn't the right to bodily self-determination and the right to privacy, even if it involves a third person or second person like a doctor, why doesn't that extend to things like kidney sales and prostitution? Isn't that the same way of using your body? The question is whether the state can regulate conduct that may be harmful to oneself or others. And it, I think the answer to that is yes. It, the state can uh, protect you from harming yourself. I think. So um, many of you probably came here thinking that you're going to hear a rousing defense of Roe v. Wade. And what you heard instead was a much more nuanced, careful, thoughtful, judicious analysis of a legal, constitutional, institutional question. Um, and it's that that really makes Justice Ginsburg special and great as a justice. Um, that she's not ideologically reflexive. Um, she's not knee-jerk and, and predictable in the way you might think. Um, and this is really what makes her a great, great judge and a great justice. And, and we're very fortunate, Justice Ginsburg, to have you here with us today. Jeff, Jeff, I'd like to thank you so much for leading our discussion today. It was very interesting. And Justice Ginsburg, thank you so much for coming here today and for, as Jeff said, really um, lead, answering questions in both a very honest and very thoughtful way and also one that makes us think 
about constitutional law and the institution of the court, as well as the Roe case and the cases leading up to Roe. Now, in our, we would like to give you a token of our appreciation and affection, and of course, in Chicago tradition, that will come in the form of a book. So I'd like to give you uh, a book, uh, and we know that you have a great interest in feminism, obviously, and so what we are going to give you today is a first edition of Margaret Sanger's classic 1927 work, What Every Boy and Girl Should Know. We hope that you enjoy it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. And I'd like to thank the audience for being here. I'd like to also thank the Center for the Study of Gender and Sexuality and the Institute of Politics for co-sponsoring this event today. And I would like to encourage all of you to make your way out of this room and head towards the Green Lounge uh, where we'll have a reception. And please join me once again in thanking Justice Ginsburg. This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu.